Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton and you are watching or listening to the Multipolarista podcast. And today I have a friend of the show, Robbie Martin. He's a great journalist who's covered, you know, neoconservatives documenting the U.S. rights and pro-war forces in Washington for many years. He's got a really good documentary focused on it called A Very Heavy Agenda. He's also a co-host of Media Roots Radio with Abby Martin sister. They're both great journalists. And I brought in Robbie today because he's done a lot of research on this so-called populist rights. And this is something that we've seen emerge in the U.S. really since the election of Trump. This very cynical, ridiculous campaign to try to portray Republicans as so-called populists. And that term really means nothing. I mean, we can get into that a bit later. The term populist is, is used so contradictorily to mean different things. But what I want to focus on today is the very ridiculous attempt and cynical attempt to try to portray some of these Republicans as anti-war, when in reality, these, some of these Republicans, all they do is oppose war on Russia, but they support war on China. They support war on Iran. They support war on Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua. They're not anti-war, but there's been this very uh, misleading campaign led by people like Tucker Carlson and, you know, Glenn Greenwald has been playing into this and we can talk about that in a second, trying to portray Republicans as so-called anti-interventionists and Democrats as the party of war. Both parties are completely pro-imperialist. Both parties are completely pro-war. Now there's a division within the U.S. ruling class and some elements of the ruling class want war on Russia. They tend to be largely Democrats. And some elements of the U.S. ruling class want war on China, and they tend to be Republicans and especially these fake so-called populists. But they're all pro-war. And this idea that the Republican Party is realigning and becoming a working class party and it's anti-war is ridiculous nonsense. And what's so crazy to me, Robbie, I just want to begin kind of reflecting on this. What's so crazy is, you know, I've been involved in the anti-war movement since like 2006, 2007. I was a little too young to be like right when the Iraq war happened. I was a little too young. But I, I remember from the very earliest days of my involvement in the anti-war movement, everyone understood that both bourgeois parties in the U.S. are enemies of progressive working people. They're both imperialist parties. They both support war. And the idea of voting for a Democrat was seen as a lesser evil strategy and was opposed by most people in the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement. But what's incredible is I've seen some people, I mentioned Glenn Greenwald and others, who basically done kind of a reverse lesser evilism, and they're now trying to convince people who oppose war and empire that the Republicans are a lesser evil. So they've adopted the same lesser evilism rhetoric, but for another faction of the U.S. ruling class, and as you've documented, I mean, all these figures, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, you know, Josh Hallway, they're all complete neocons. Now, they don't support war on Russia, but they support war in China and Iran and Venezuela and Cuba. Trump murdered the second in command of the Iranian government, Qasem Soleimani. Trump expanded the war in Afghanistan and the war in Yemen. He militarily occupied Syria. He imposed brutal sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba. He tore up arms agreements with Russia. And yet, we're supposed to believe that Trump and all of these Republicans are anti-war populists. I mean, let's just reflect on this, this what I see as a very cynical marketing campaign. What, what do you think, Robbie? 
I mean, there's so much to say just about how you just intro this segment. Um, but I guess I'll start with something I've been thinking about recently, which is this technique, which I think has become very popular since Trump. I don't think Trump started it. In fact, I think Bannon actually has a lot to do with this, which is using rhetoric from the left, typically even some rhetoric from like left academia that's like structural critique and using the energy from that for right-wing purposes. And I think one of the most famous versions of that is the deep state, how it's become sort of a right-wing talking point, but it originally comes from sort of left-wing structural critique of uh, the U.S. empire, the military industrial complex and things like that. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to you can see hints of this in, you know, Steve Bannon before he became a household name was a documentary filmmaker. And one of his biggest influences was Michael Moore. And I think he's very open about that, that Michael Moore is someone that he sort of admired his ability to, you know, sort of push these left wing narratives in sort of a provocative agitprop form. And it's not just the style in which Michael Moore pushed it. I also think the rhetoric itself has been used by people on the right to gain credibility that, let's say it's it's credibility that that war, it's worked on the left. Like people who are genuinely consistently anti-war on the left um, are typically more admired or more revered as being like more consistent and real people. And I think some of that credibility has been seen by people on the right as some kind of, uh, you know, badge of honor that can be used to sort of uh, portray someone on the right as being different or being even anti-establishment. Um, and we saw this work very well during the 2016 election where Trump basically obliterated the Bush legacy by using the Iraq war against them. Uh, not, you know, not just Jeb, but his brother by proxy. Um, even though Trump uh, was sort of waffling on his own support for the Iraq war at times while it was happening. So what you have is sort of this revisionist history going on, this revisionist technique where these politicians know now, um, a lot of them on the right, understand that being against war in a general sense, in a largely sort of symbolic sense without really going underneath the surface of what that really means, is gains you credibility as a politician who's fighting against the establishment of some kind. And, and I think that that's, there's an important distinction to be made too. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but I just saw someone on Twitter say that, you know, Republicans are not actually anti-war. Uh, they're anti, technically anti-intervention in a narrow sense in certain circumstances. But I think uh, what that poster was saying that I kind of agree with, and maybe that's not exactly what he meant, but being anti-war to me means being morally opposed to the idea of killing civilians in other countries, uh, being morally opposed to war. And ever since Republicans in general started adopting any anti-war rhetoric at, after the Bush era, which I'd say really started with the Tea Party on Afghanistan, uh, the Republican or sort of the libertarian Republican framing on being anti the Afghanistan war has always come down to this is a waste of our American soldiers' lives and our resources. Not, it's never about, um, you know, the Afghan people are suffering unnecessarily from us occupying their country. Uh, civilians are being killed all the time. Um, there's nothing about that in the Republican framing about this. So even you take it back to the very beginning 
of the sort of anti-interventionism framing that people like Rand Paul were pushing around the same time of the Tea Party. It was never, I would say, it was ever actually anti-war. It's just anti-specific kinds of intervention based on largely selfish reasons, America first, you know, reasoning, um, this sort of nationalistic reasoning. So I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but I'll just stop there because I know we have more to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a key point. And, and here, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the weeds about this at the beginning because I want to focus more on just exposing the ridiculous pro-war propaganda of people like Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis and Josh Holloway and and other uh, so-called and, and Tulsi Gabbard, who's become a full-on conservative speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference (CPAC). I mean, but anyway, before we get to that, I, I do think that it's important to distinguish being anti-intervention, being anti-war, and being anti-imperialist because there's this there's this lazy attempt to conflate all those things together. There are people who are anti-intervention but pro-imperialist. In fact. They, they're called libertarians, many of them. I mean, there are, I get, I mean, I don't want to get into a whole discussion about libertarianism, but a lot of these, like you said, a lot of these right-wing uh, voices, you know, Rand Paul is an example who, who calls himself kind of a libertarian, even though his, unlike his dad, he's actually part of the Republican Party. But, um, you know, these kind of right-wing libertarian voices, they're against interventionism, but not because of some ideological opposition. It's because they don't, they see it as, being against U.S. interests and they, in some cases being against even imperial interests. So, I mean, the idea of being anti-imperialist is being against imperialism as an economic system, which is rooted in capitalism. So the idea of a Republican being anti-imperialist is just preponderant. It's just it's preposterous. <laughs> it's completely absurd. And seeing people say that so there, are, there are anti-imperialist Republicans they don't they don't know what anti-imperialist means. I mean, and then it, you also raise a good point about being anti-war, like being anti-war is also being ideologically rooted in commitment to opposition to war because of its destruction of civilian lives, because of the damage it does to working people and humble people and average people. But you have to understand what imperialism is as an economic system to be opposed to it. And like I said, I mean, if you listen to a lot of this rhetoric, they say, well, I'm against war on Russia because it's bad for America. And actually what we want is war on China because that's better for the U.S. empire. And what this comes down to, I think, is what I said at the beginning. There's this, fundam there's this fundamental conflict. There's a disagreement within the U.S. ruling class. And there are some people who think, no, we need to ally with Russia to wage war on China. And if you listen to this so-called populist right, that's what they're all saying. They're all saying, our real enemy is not Moscow, it's Beijing. It's the Communist Party of China. They're all full on with the new Cold War on China, not to mention Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Iran, as we'll get to. So for me, I mean, the opposition to China is a key part of this. And I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that. It's a fundamental part of this. And I mean, I was just speaking with um, someone named Dave Ducamp who works for, uh, who writes for anti-war. He's more of a libertarian. And the only name he could come up with was Thomas Massey. And the only name I could come up with was Rand Paul of people who hold office on the right, who are, you know, so-called anti-war, anti-interventionists who do not also feed into a hysterical um, hawkish framing on China. Um, and so I think that that's very notable is that if you really look at the entire spectrum of all these people who are supposedly you know, right populist, um, anti-war people, 
there's really only a tiny amount of them, a tiny percentage of them who actually do not engage in the hawkish rhetoric on China. Now, I, I really think there's a lot of resemblances between sort of the more liberal, you know, um, Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol, neocon uh, way of looking at Ukraine and Russia, like a lot of these people see uh, China and Taiwan. Um, in fact, right after uh, Biden, you know, started escalating things in Ukraine and after Russia invaded Ukraine recently, you did start to see a lot of those supposedly populist anti-war um, Republicans like uh, I, I want to say Howley, I think I saw Howley doing it and some other people immediately pivoting to saying like Biden's lost Ukraine. Now he's going to lose Taiwan too. It's like, wait a second. I thought you guys were not worrying about Ukraine before. They can very quickly pivot to that, you know, when it comes to what they, how they really feel, because on some level it's arbitrary, you know, why they would think that Taiwan needs defending from American intervention, but Ukraine doesn't, you know, so it's inconsistent in terms of like their worldview. Um, so I think that, I mean, yeah, the, the China thing is fundamental in all of this because what we've seen, especially since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is a resurrection of sort of these very hawkish, um, I would argue very neoconservative, classic neoconservative um, views coming out all over right-wing media, especially um, against China. I mean, we even saw a whole media apparatus sort of form around, around this uh, mentality. You know, the Epic Times um, started being dropped off on people's doorsteps in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the, the newspaper is half of it is just like neoconservative, you know, uh, foaming at the mouth rhetoric about China in all kinds of different ways. So and I mean, I can talk more the, about that, but yeah. The Epoch Times, you should explain, is is a propaganda arm of this far-right Chinese cult called Falun Gong, which is obviously linked to U.S. intelligence. And the U.S. and Canadian governments have been funding their media arm, their TV arm. And they basically just went full in in support of Trump. And Falun Gong also basically preached that Trump was sent by God to come and destroy China. And their media arm, Epoch Times, just became basically an appendage of the Republican Party. Yeah. So, I mean, and it and it's goes a lot further than that, too. I mean, I would say just overall, there's a sort of a weird faction of sort of this these hawkish, um, you know, war making people in the ruling class who have worked with various cults over the years, including you know, a cult you're probably familiar with, M.E.K., to sort of drum up anti-Iran, you know, regime change sentiment. Um, Falun Gong is sort of the one of the cults that we work with to drum up anti-Chinese sentiment. Um, we also work with the Moonies, or you know, it's it, that in terms of U.S. intelligence to Moonies pipeline, it's not clear. But like the Washington Times, for example, which is sort of a weird outlet that kind of straddles the line between like right-wing alt media and like regular media. Um, that's also linked to uh, another cult called the Moonies. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this is all wrapped up in some weird uh, group of people that ha really have this agenda um, that where they really came knives out uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and linked up with, like we saw an actual confluence of classic project for the new American century neocons like Frank Gaffney, people like Gordon Chang, uh, James Woolsey, linking up with people like Steve Bannon and sort of creating a little sector of 
think tanks in DC that sort of mixed together the right populist framing that became popular during Trump and sort of this very specific agenda um, to do some kind of regime change or turn up the heat against China. And I think the one that probably embodies that the most strong, like strongly is the foundation for defense uh, for democracies, which is an Israeli government, partly Israeli government funded neocon think tank that's specifically always been about regime change in Iran that sort of uh, pivoted to China um, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And I do think that there is a lineage of these specific more hawkish neocons like the Gaffneyites, the Frank Gaffney uh, clique that split off from the Bill Crystals and the Robert Kagan sometime around 2006, 2007, when it came to at least the way they rhetorically wanted to talk about Iran. And people like Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan uh, didn't talk anymore about openly wanting to bomb Iran or preemptively nuke them. But these other neocons would still push uh, very strong hawkish rhetoric against Iran regime change. And that was their focus. And that, and I would say that that's sort of the lineage of where these sort of anti-China uh, neocons largely come from. But, you know, we're mostly talking about the populist right. Um, and they've sort of bled in into that world. And that, you know, and that's, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a thing where now where they're kind of, it's hard not to find this neocon rhetoric within uh, the populist right world. Even some of the most supposedly, you know, anti-establishment uh, populist right um, outlets you can find, even some of the more conspiracy media people that it's all bled into everywhere, pretty much. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, Infowars for years has been pushing this Chaicom propaganda, talking about Chaicoms, Chinese communists have infiltrated every institution, the Chinese communists. And basically they don't use the term Chaicom, but I mean, that, those so-called populist right, that's all they do. We'll talk about Tucker Carlson. All he does is accuse everyone of being soft on the Communist Party of China, accusing, you know, he has on all these neocons who accuse the Democratic Party of being communist Chinese assets or whatever. I mean, it, it's it's really insane. And, and on this subject, I mean, just today, I'm going to get up this tweet. Just today, today is May 13th. This guy, Jim Banks, who's a congressman in Indiana, who's one of those these fake, uh, he calls himself, you know, pro-working class. He calls himself a populist. Here's his Twitter account, Afghanistan veteran. And his pinned tweet says, working class GOP. He's, he's going to make the GOP a working class party. I mean, it's the most ridiculous bullshit. And just today, he, he boasted that he introduced the Communist Visa Transparency Act. This is literal McCarthyite bullshit. I mean, this is straight up Joseph McCarthy era legislation where he says he's boasting this, his office boasts in this press release. He introduced the communist visa transparency act legislation to require all visa applicants to the United States to report any affiliation with a communist party and to require applicants from China to report any affiliation with China's military, paramilitary law enforcement, public security, or national security services. I mean, not a, this is a quote from him. This is a so-called populist who claims that he wants the GOP to be a working class party. Not a single Biden administration or federal government official can accurately estimate how many Chinese Communist Party members currently live in the United States. That is an unacceptable national security risk. Talking about malign influence. I mean, this is straight up McCarthyism. And this isn't even to mention, I mean, 
like I said, there there is a split. There are some Republicans who want to ally with Russia against China, so they oppose the proxy war in Ukraine. But Josh Josh Hawley, I mean, people jokingly call him Josh Hallway, like he also is portrayed as one of these fake pro-worker Republicans. He's called a populist up there with like J.D. Vance. And look at look at these tweets. He's been criticizing Biden from the right on Ukraine, saying that Biden is not being aggressive enough against Russia. He said, I just finished a, brief, mm -hmm. a briefing with President Zelensky of Ukraine, whose courage on behalf of his people is inspiring. Zelensky urgently asked the U.S. to stop imports of Russian gas and oil. When will Joe Biden listen? So this, this is... This is so-called right-wing populism. Here's another one. I mean, th this is, again, one of these so-called anti-war Republicans who also, by the way, when he was in college, supported the Iraq war. Like all of these, these so-called populist right people, they were just neocons who were trying to rebrand. They all supported the Iraq war, including Trump, including Tucker Carlson. Here's Josh Hallway again. Uh, powerful message this morning from President Zelensky of Ukraine said he wished Joe Biden would step up and lead the world. Biden needs to get serious and shut down energy production and arm the Ukrainians with MiGs, which are fighter jets, to defend the skies. He's calling for a hot war with Russia. He's calling for World War III. This guy is a populist? What the, what the hell is this? You know, I've, the name escapes me now. Maybe you remember who he is. He was recently on Tucker Carlson, Howley-esque, coming out again as someone who was actually saying like he was against neocons um another peter Thiel sort of propped up candidate and he even went further than that he said something like we need to send in like some like real mad dog like fighter pilot like u.s fighter jets like into ukraine to like bait like a basically like a russian uh plane or soldier into shooting one of them so that we can just like you know obliterate a bunch of russian soldiers um, like he wanted to go like top gun style, like on, on the Russian army in Ukraine. So it is, it, I mean, so I think that the timing of that tweet's really interesting. You pulled up because there's the script keeps being revised. It's like they get their messaging at a certain point. Like, I don't know how Howley is talking now, but I'd imagine he's sort of more uh, joined along with this consensus that this is, you know, this administration is taking, taking us down a dangerous road. In Ukraine, but a lot, but you're right. A lot of these uh, populist right acting Republicans uh, were trying to out hawk a Biden right after Russia invaded Ukraine, and that was their position at first. Now I'm sure a lot of them has sort of you know changed their position since then. But I think it's just very indicative of like it really that's what it's really about. It's not. I mean, it's only like I was saying. It's they only use sort of this you know so called anti war rhetoric when it's convenient for them. Um, and I think, you know, someone like Tulsi Gabbard, for example, I don't know how, you know, if she is super, I don't know how right wing she actually is. I think she is pretty right wing in some areas, but she, you know, largely rebranded from being a hawk um, to some kind of anti neocon anti war person. And she, you know, specifically with Ukraine, she was one of the first Democrats uh, to come out and, and talk very strongly against sending more money um, and weapons to Ukraine a couple of years ago. And it was strange to me, and she's never explained why she originally voted for the $300 million weapons supplemental to Ukraine. So there's a lot of politicians who have tried to do this. And I think that basically what it illustrates is that it's very easy 
to use anti-war rhetoric as almost like virtue signaling. I don't know a better phrase to use than that when there's really no substance behind it. Um, and what, it, you know, ba backing that up with something or a record or a track record, especially when it comes to all these new people who come onto the scene, like Howley, who, you know, I don't even really know. What, is there even anything he said in public about the Iraq war? Um, it, Cause that's, that's awfully convenient too. If you could just sort of, you know, have this clean slate jump into the fray and not really, you know, have anything for people to check to see if you have supported the Iraq war or not. Um, you know, like even someone like Greenwald has been writing long enough uh, to actually have things where it did seem like he sort of passively supported the Iraq war because that's how long he's been writing. <laughs> so you can go find writings of his like that now. Yeah. And there's a lot to say about and, and we can talk about Glenn and, and all of that later. And because I think it's worth calling. I mean, Glenn has basically just become a Republican. He's constantly in Fox News defending these so-called right wing populists. But before we do that, I think we should start really with the, the kind of king of these fake right populists, and that's Tucker Carlson. So there is this really good article by friend of the show, Alan McLeod, over at Mint Press. And I know that you helped him, you helped send some research to him for this article on Tucker Carlson. It's titled, The Elite Pedigree of a Brilliant Cosplaying Populist. And I'll let you kind of summarize some of the main points, but in this article, he points out how, you know, Tucker comes from this extremely rich family. He used to boast about how, how he was a completely out of touch elite. And now all he does is criticize the elites, but he never actually, he never defines what an elite actually is. He's, he's certainly not against capitalists because he's very pro-capitalist. So he uses elite in this very ambiguous way that makes it easy to be a so-called populist because again, all this is left undefined and, and politically vague. Meanwhile, I mean, you you found and and Alan McLeod showed in his this article that Tucker Carlson tried to join the CIA, and I mean his dad also is very shady, which you can talk about working for CIA uh, media outlets, U.S. regime media outlets, spreading propaganda. So Tucker Carlson is CIA adjacent, and Tucker Carlson was in Nicaragua, where I am right now, in the 1980s, supporting the Contra death squads, and was apparently working with the CIA-backed right wing in Nicaragua because there are photos of him with Violeta de Barrio, Violeta Barrio de Chamorro, who became the U.S.-backed right wing puppet leader after the Sandinistas were, were pushed out of power by the, by the U.S. through this terrorist war. So, I mean, not even to mention, which we'll talk about in a bit, we'll show some clips of Tucker's insane pro-war propaganda against China and Iran and Venezuela. But even aside from that, I mean, Tucker Carlson has an extremely shady history. So talk about his links to the CIA, his shady, uh, his father's extremely shady work and what he was doing in Nicaragua in the 80s. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I recently found this um, interview he gave where he's just sort of being asked random questions. I think it's just like sort of like a lightning round of questions. Some talk show host was asking him. And one of the questions was like, what did he do when he was in college or what's something like exciting or strange he did in college? And he says that uh, he ended up going down to Nicaragua to help uh, the Contras in their war. Um, he doesn't specifically mention the CIA in this little interchange. Um, but, you know, people like you and me and other people who've studied U.S. imperialism understand that that was a, a major CIA war um, in Nicaragua. Uh, where the CIA and a lot, lots of disinformation and lots of forces were used to try to discredit um, the, the Sandinistas, 
uh, propagandize against them. And what's fascinating is it's almost like, so he tried to join the CIA and apparently didn't get in, according to him. Um, meanwhile, his father starts work at the U.S. Information Agency under Reagan. He was handpicked, actually, by Reagan. Um, he made friends with someone who was close to Ronald Reagan, Dick Carlson did, uh, Tucker Carlson's father. And he got hired to be the head of the Voice of America, which is the uh, the radio arm of uh, sort of U.S. disinformation. It's a U.S. state-funded media outlet that's closely been linked to the CIA um, since its existence. Uh, he's also partly responsible, even though he claims he's not. Um, the timing of when he got there is simultaneously when Radio Marti started, which was a, a version, another U.S. state-funded media outlet that was broadcast only in Cuba, designed to, you know, sort of uh, undermine um, the Cuban government, essentially, which is which the purpose of all U.S. state-funded media, essentially. And he was also instrumental in uh, collaborating with uh, uh, a radio station called Radio Beijing. Now, this apparently was not officially part of VOA, but they somehow collaborated with them during the Tiananmen Square incident as well. So this, so, so oddly, Dick Carlson, Tucker Carlson's son, played this really big role in his, opening his up dad. Cuba. Tucker Carlson's yeah, sorry, dad. sorry to say his son, sorry. <laughs> oh, played this really big role in opening up Cuba and China uh, to a lot of um, U.S. propaganda via their airwaves in their own native languages. So like in Cuba and Spanish, and I don't know what it was, you know, what if they did it in Mandarin and China, but it was... It, it basically was designed to undermine both of those governments. And uh, Dick Carlson has this extremely interesting, detailed interview he did with a student at some college where he goes through every uh, experience he had at VOA and what he did. And and it, one and one question that the guy asked him is he says, um, you know, would you, from a practical point of view, if you are from the other side, is a Voice of America correspondent far more dangerous than a spy? And Dick Carlson says, oh, yes, uh, it is far more dangerous. So he's sort of bragging throughout this interview of like how much of a role they had to play and like sort of this spy craft like activity of undermining these other governments, you know, throughout the world. And he was also instrumental in, um, you know, some of the broadcasts in um, Soviet territory and in the Soviet Union um, as the Berlin's wall is falling. So. His role there, um, you know, he was part of all these really big events uh, that were considered, you know, these big wins for the U.S. government. And meanwhile, around the same time, his son is doing what appears to be almost like a Mormon style mission, like a CIA Mormon style mission to Nicaragua to help uh, the Contras fight in this war that was also being, you know, propped up by Reagan's CIA. So, um, very, very strange uh, history there. And also, uh, Tucker describes him going down with some of his college buddies. One of these, one of those buddies is um, someone who people may be familiar with, Neil Patel, who ended up being a top advisor to Dick Cheney and a very instrumental player in the Bush administration. Um, and this is also something interesting. You know, we you have this idea that Tucker Carlson is some kind of populist. Well, the Swanson dinner you know, his, his father marrying um, the heir of the Swanson, uh, you know, fortune, Swanson dinner fortune, uh, 
kind of takes that label away from him to some extent. But I think this idea that he, you know, he made his way through media by like climbing up, writing for papers or whatever, you know, however he wants to present himself is also false because his father um, nepotistically got him his first media job because his father was also involved in running PBS. Um, and Tucker's first media job was not like being like a mailroom clerk at PBS. Uh, it was literally like being given his own show <laughs> at PBS. So his dad, his daddy got him his own show under his own name, like as his first media gig, um, incidentally enough. So that, and that was before Tucker Carlson started working for Bill Crystal at the Weekly Standard, which we can talk about later if you want. Yeah, I mean, this is a key point. We need to understand that, you know, Tucker has been trying to rebrand as like the right-wing populist who's against the neocons. He was a neocon for the vast majority of his career. He got his start at the Weekly Standard, but I'll get to that in a second. I mean, this, for, for people who, who are skeptical, this is, uh, this is an article back in 2017 before Tucker became like a massively huge name with the biggest show in the U.S., over at the week and it's citing this report in the New Yorker and it's Tucker Carlson tried to join the CIA. And here's the quote from this profile in the New Yorker magazine. After college, Carlson tried and failed to persuade the CIA to employ him. I mean, again, that's what he says. Uh, uh, how much can you believe someone who admitted to trying to join the CIA? But, um, but let's talk about what Tucker did after, you know, uh, supporting the Contras in Nicaragua and trying to join the CIA. He also started working for neocon media outlets, including the neocon Bible, the Weekly Standard. And he was actually a Democrat until 2020. He was registered as a Democrat. And it shows again how these neocons, they have this, they, they, they go constantly in between the two parties, right? Because when it comes to imperialism, Democrats and Republicans are indistinguishable. They both support US empire and war. So it's not surprising to see that Tucker was a Democrat and then he, now he's a Republican because, you know, he was a neocon. Talk about what he was doing for years leading up to now. I mean, one of the most interesting things I found about him, and this is completely randomly because I was I buy, um, you know, if I if I find a good collection of old weekly standards uh, issues, I'll buy them on like eBay because a lot of those <laughs> reprintings or the digital copies don't exist. So. Some of that stuff is kind of like lost in time forever. So I just brought a stack randomly from the 90s on eBay. It was like 20 bucks for like 20 issues or something. And there was I was like kind of surprised because I just had no idea that like half of the issues had Tucker Carlson's name in the credits. And I was like, oh, this is really crazy. I just had no idea, you know, the way he presents himself now that he even wrote for the Weekly Standard. And, all you know, I was already familiar with his book Ship of Fools which depicts Bill Crystal in cartoon caricature form on the cover. Like, look at this, you know, fucking idiot. He's, you know, a total warmonger. It's kind of like the way Chris or Tucker is presenting him in this book. Uh, although Tucker all, all admittedly does say in the book that he still thinks Bill Crystal is like charming and funny. And he contrasts him with Robert Kagan saying Robert Kagan was like an arrogant a-hole and, and someone that he did not like at all. Um, but, when Tucker Carlson wrote for the Weekly Standard, most of his stuff was pretty boilerplate. You know, it's funny you mentioned that he was a Democrat because it's largely just like social conservative boilerplate kind of crap in the Weekly Standard. A lot of people forget that the neocon Bible, as they call it, the Weekly Standard, 
had a lot of stuff in it also that resembles the kind of right populist, you know, America first stuff people, you know, say is uh, populist today. It, it was mixed well, together. And Robbie, that, even that whole America first branding that goes back to Ronald Reagan. Sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. So Tucker Carlson, I, I'd say the probably the most interesting editorial or article that I just happened to come across in the stack of weekly standards I had was an article a very long article uh, bashing um, journalist, uh, San Jose Mercury writer, journalist Gary Webb for his uh, expose on the CIA being having a role in the crack epidemic and being involved in drug trafficking. Um, and in, in order to fund the Contra death squads that Tucker Carlson supported. <laughs> exactly. And it gets even weirder too, right? Because I was like, well, wait a second. I remember seeing Elliot Abrams' name on one of these uh, weekly standards in this same archive I bought. So I was looking through a bunch of them, and I started to find, you know, in consecutive months, bylines from Tucker and Elliot Abrams on like the same weekly standard issues. And I'm like, so this is the guy who literally was taking money from Oliver North's slush fund, who was implicated in the Iran Contra scandal in the Reagan administration. Elliot Abrams, for people who don't know. Uh, also a project for the New American Century Neocon, wrote articles side by side with Tucker Carlson in the Weekly Standard. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson is writing articles saying, oh, there's nothing to see here. This is all scaremongering from this crazy, you know, crackpot journalist, Gary Webb. Um, so it's just, it's multiple layers of ridiculousness when you think about it. It's, you know, there there's one of the guys who was part of Iran-Contra writing um, for the same magazine Tucker as while well. he's, you know, bashing Webb. And it's fascinating because there's this whole idea now that sort of these right populists are somehow aligned in opposition to the CIA. You know, like the deep state is liberal, right? According to these people. So therefore, they're sort of, they're in opposition to the CIA. Now, it's interesting to me because this theme actually does go back to even like very, very neocon administrations. You can make the argument if you wanted to, that the Bush administration was against the CIA for trying to wage some kind of like, you know, war against a part of the CIA by uncovering Valerie Plame's name and her husband going against Joe Wilson, um, them basically trying to browbeat aspects of the CIA into giving them the intelligence that they wanted to and then punishing them when they didn't. I mean, so this whole idea, I think, has just become so oversimplified and deliberately so to make it appear that these people are somehow like in opposition to the deep state of the CIA when it's just clear that it's, I mean, at the very least, it's not that simple. And we have ample evidence that's, that Tucker is like right in the pocket of, of this alignment that was completely aligned with some of the most hardcore hawkish CIA forces that there ever were like in our lifetime. So it's just, it's kind of peculiar that now he's acting like he is, you know, completely uh, on the opposite of this, you know, today. Yeah, I mean, and that you this also this narrative goes back to Nixon, who I mean, in some ways was kind of a victim of the deep state. There was, you know, Watergate is a whole other thing to get into, and and the role of the CIA and in, in that, and you know, uh, the CIA's pro chosen journalist that it works with at the Washington Post and all that. But I mean, you know, you could go back to to Richard Nixon, who was of course a hardcore right wing conservative, vehement anti communist, who also, you know, uh, would would criticize the CIA after, I mean, organizing the, the coup in Chile and, you know, uh, Richard, uh, Richard Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger saying, make the economy scream in Chile and all that. But, 
But anyway, I mean, uh, I want to get to uh, what Tucker still does today because look, one of the, the talking points used by people is they say, fine, Tucker has a history for the vast majority of his career of being a neocon, supporting the Iraq war. He referred to Iraqis as semi-literate primitive monkeys. I mean, so we haven't even talked about Tucker Carlson being a, a full-on white supremacist. I mean, he's a straight-up explicit racist. And, and of course, I mean, how anyone can look past that and justify that for me is just fucking mind-blowing. I mean, this guy is a complete white supremacist. But even aside from that, I mean, I, I want to focus on what he's still doing today because his critics or his supporters rather will say, well, you know, Tucker Carlson was bad, you know, 10 years ago, but he's turned a new leaf. He's no longer a neocon. Now he's supposedly anti-war. I, I want to show some of these clips of the insane propaganda on his show. And you have like a really good thread with some of these video clips showing how he's just he's a, he's been pushing a bunch of full on neocon propaganda against Venezuela, Iran, and especially China. But I'm going to start with this clip here, which is from 2018. And this is an insane neocon clip about Venezuela that, that you found. And again, this is this is Tucker Carlson in 2018. This is not back when, you know, he supported the Iraq war and wasn't full on neocon. And now this is this is when he claims to be a, a right wing populist. Here's this clip you have. We have is. more criminals in our own hemisphere. China is taking over Latin America and the Caribbean. Venezuela. Had oh, my God. I mean, there's so many things to say about this clip, but just. He starts saying, we have war criminals in our own hemisphere. Of course, he's not referring to the U.S. government officials who are war criminals. He's referring to Latin America. And then he says, China is taking over our hemisphere, referring to Latin America as the U.S. colonial property. So, I mean, that, that rhetoric alone is just, it shows, like, this idea of a right-wing populist, it's such bullshit. But let me continue here. We have war criminals in our own hemisphere. China is taking over Latin America and the Caribbean. Venezuela has collapsed. El Salvador is collapsing. Mexico has a drug war that's killed more people than we lost in Vietnam. The world in our hemisphere, our neighbors, contiguous countries are collapsing, and we're ignoring that for the sake of some weird war in Syria 6,000 miles from here. Does this seem a little off to you? Well, as I said to you before, because we can't deal with every incidents of war criminalization so the guy speaking is a former hillary clinton advisor and what tucker always does is he always has this false debate with some you know neoliberal pro-war democrat he he'll he won't debate it with you know a leftist who supports venezuela or china or whatever i mean it's ridiculous and yeah he'll have a few on he'll sometimes have a few token leftists on but he'll always he'll frame it in a way that always helps the republican party and that helped donald trump when trump was in power but let me continue here incidents of war criminalization doesn't mean we have to back away but from why this Syria. why would we deal with maduro in venezuela first well More people i mean maduro destroyed a first world country almost first world country i mean maduro destroyed a first world country almost first so then he says why don't we deal with maduro first that is why don't why doesn't the u.s overthrow the venezuelan government because he supposedly destroyed his country full-on neocon rhetoric and he's doing it in a way where he's like i'm against the war in syria but that's because I want the war to come home. This is not anti-war. Like, and there's so many of these clips. Here's another one. I mean, this is an incredible clip you found, Robbie. This is another 2018 clip of Tucker Carlson saying, I mean, saying that in Venezuela, they eat zoo animals. 
insane neocon propaganda. Well, no country in the Western Hemisphere has failed more completely in more ways than Venezuela, sadly. Has a lot going for it. Had a huge. I mean, first of all, that's insane. Uh, he mentioned, you know, that El Salvador was had a failed state. I mean, El Salvador had the highest murder rate on earth. El Salvador has has been largely responsible for a huge immigration flow because of, you know, not to mention the U.S. history of supporting the civil war in El Salvador or Honduras, where the U.S. backed coup regime also led the country to having the highest murder rate on earth. But he says Venezuela is the worst. I mean. Again, neocon propaganda. Well, no country in the Western Hemisphere has failed more completely in more ways than Venezuela, sadly. Has a lot going for it. Had a huge middle class. It has, of course, the world's largest proven oil reserves. Today, it can't even feed itself. There's no toilet paper some days in Caracas. They're eating zoo animals. There's no toilet paper. They're eating zoo animals. I can assure everyone watching and listening, I've been to Venezuela numerous times. There is food. There is toilet paper. They're not eating zoo animals has, of course, the world's largest proven oil reserves. Today, it can't even feed itself. There's no toilet paper some days in Caracas. They're eating zoo animals. What happened? Well, you know what happened. They implemented socialism, and there were obvious and predictable and disastrous consequences. But He said, what happened? Socialism. No mention of the sanctions, no mention of the U.S. hybrid <laughs> war, because he supports that war on Venezuela. That's not the whole story of what happened there. Six years ago, the government of Venezuela passed a gun ban specifically designed to disarm the public. It, of course, did not make people safer. Venezuela is one of the highest murder rates in the world. That wasn't the point of it. The point was to make the people powerless, and it definitely did that. As one terrified Venezuelan put it, quote, people never would have believed they needed to defend themselves against the government. But, of course, they did. In the past two years, almost 200 protesters, pro-democracy protesters, have been murdered by the security forces of dictator Nicolas Maduro. Straight up fake statistic from one yeah. of these U.S. government-backed fake NGOs. And he also calls Maduro a dictator. Again, neocon rhetoric, straight up. This is a so-called right-wing populist. In the past two years, almost 200 protesters, pro-democracy protesters, have been murdered by the security forces of dictator Nicolas Maduro. The government still has guns, of course. Authoritarians aren't stupid. They never give up their guns. That's rule one. <laughs> So it applies just as well to the United States as it does to failing socialist states. In New Jersey, ordinary citizens can go to prison for possessing gun magazines that hold too many rounds. Bernie Carrick is a former NYPD uh, commissioner. Yeah, so then he brings on an NYPD commissioner and talk about who this guy is. Oh, yeah. Ber Bernard Carrick is one of the craziest. We're, I mean, it's probably one of the strangest appointments in the Bush administration. He was the NYPD commissioner very close to Giuliani, kind of his bag man. He, he seems like a straight up mobster. He went to jail for taking bribes. Um, he wrote like a book about how he left behind his uh, Vietnamese daughter in Vietnam because he didn't realize he had like a child with somebody there. His, his story is very strange, but, but, it, but anyways, the strangest thing about him is that he immediately gets plucked by Rumsfeld ex to exclusively go to Iraq and essentially be the vice governor of Iraq under Paul Bremer in charge of training the Iraqi police in Iraq. Um, and there's also a strange connection between him and one of these kind of right populist think tanks, the Manhattan Institute, which largely sponsored all these Disney leaks coming out by Chris Rufo. They actually were hired to work with Bernard Carrick to train the NYPD on anti-terrorism Tech tactics uh, in the early Bush administration. So the Manhattan Institute 
worked with Bernard Carrick. It's a whole bunch of weird stuff there, but basically, yeah, he's like, he's a crazy neocon guy who's linked with Rudy Giuliani and worked under Paul Bremer in Iraq. <laughs> yeah. So these are the neocons that so-called right-wing populist Tucker Carlson brings on his show. I mean, you have so many clips of these. I'm going to, I'm going to play another clip here and then I'll have you comment on it about Elliot Abrams. You mentioned, you know, Tucker had been writing alongside Elliot Abrams back in the weekly standard. Of course, Elliot Abrams is this notorious war criminal who, who used uh, so-called humanitarian aid convoys of flights of the CIA cut out USAID to send weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua. I mean, of course, he was at the center of Iran-Contra. So here, here's Tucker Carlson attacking Ilhan Omar for criticizing war criminal Elliot Abrams. And, and you point out that Tucker Carlson brought up Stacey Abrams seven times more <laughs> than neocon Elliot Abrams since Elliot Abrams was appointed to the State Department under Donald Trump, of course. And what was Elliot Abrams doing under Trump? Overseeing the Venezuela coup attempt, just as he had overseen the terrorist war on Nicaragua. So here's, here's a clip from 2019 from Tucker Carlson. Congressman Omar is starting a lot of fights recently for a newcomer. She's in the center of many news stories. Today on Capitol Hill, she berated the new envoy to Venezuela, Elliot Abrams, accusing him of being a liar and attacking him over the Iran-Contra affair that took place more than 30 years ago. Here's part of it. Do you think that massacre was a fabulous achievement that happened under our watch? That is a ridiculous question. And I yes or no? No. I, I will, sorry, Mr. I will take that as a yes. Congresswoman Omar is herself, of course, a refugee to this country. She was born in Mogadishu. She spent most of her time, at least her political life, attacking this country as immoral. So he's criticizing that she's attacking the U.S. government over its war crimes. And I mean, there's so many of these. Here's another one. Really quick, we're almost out of time. Elliot Abrams, who served in the last Bush administration, is under consideration to become deputy secretary of state. You wrote this. Crack the door to admit Elliot Abrams and the neocons will become scurrying in by the hundreds. Yeah, I, I think someone who was a never Trumper, someone who never, <laughs> never be in a Trump State Department. I mean, for goodness sakes. But he also represents things that Donald Trump doesn't. President Trump has been different than many. He said that nation building hasn't worked. When he said that, Elliot Abrams came forward and said, he's absolutely wrong. Nation building is what we need to do. Regime change, Iraq war. Elliot Abrams was one of the key architects of the Iraq war. We don't need people with the failed policies back in. Trump does represent something new and different from policy, and I think a, a welcome relief from the neocons. So I hope he doesn't appoint somebody who doesn't really agree with him. I'm baffled by it. I got to be honest, Senator Paul. Thanks a lot. So he he was baffled by it, but then here here his on his same show here is promoting Elliot Abrams again. Diplomatic relations between the United States and Venezuela are continuing to deteriorate tonight. The U.S. no longer recognizes Nicolas Maduro as president of that country. In response to that, Venezuela has ordered American diplomats to leave Venezuela. The U.S. has not complied. The Trump administration now says, quote, all options are on the table regarding Venezuela. Could this lead to a military conflict of some kind with that country? Fox News Chief Intelligence Correspondent Catherine Herridge has been following the situation in Venezuela very closely, and she joins us tonight with a report. 
Kathy? Thank you, Tucker, and good evening. Venezuela is much more than a regional conflict, with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo confirming that Iran has a significant footprint in Venezuela and other Latin American nations. So full-on anti-Iran neocon propaganda saying Venezuela is a threat because Iran. I mean, right on Tucker Carlson's show. Listen to this insane shit. Iran has a significant footprint in Venezuela and other Latin American nations through the terrorist group Hezbollah. The FBI is seeking information about an operative Ghazi Nasser al-Din who is tied to Hezbollah and has Syrian and Venezuelan passports. Based on recent intelligence, Nasser al-Din was operating from Venezuela. Sanctioned by the Treasury Department, he has at least 10 aliases, and he's linked to clandestine networks in Syria that amplified the violence and fueled the Syrian refugee crisis, eventually drawing in the U.S., Russia, and Iran. Wow. She says that Hezbollah is what is responsible for the refugee crisis in Syria, and it drew in the U.S., not mentioning, you know, the U.S. weapons that went to ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the U.S. so-called moderate rebels who were allied with Al-Qaeda, but... This, this is this insane neocon propaganda on Tucker Carlson's show. Let me continue here. Yes, is. And he's linked to clandestine networks in Syria that amplified the violence and fueled the Syrian refugee crisis, eventually drawing in the U.S., Russia, and Iran. National security experts said a similar scenario may be playing out in Venezuela. Latest projections from the Brookings Institution, a Washington, D.C. think tank, our 8.2 million refugees and migrants may leave Venezuela. That is 25% of the current population. And now Russia, China, and Cuba are backing the Maduro regime. Russia, China, and Cuba are backing the Maduro regime. This is Tucker Carlson's show. Population. And now Russia, China, and Cuba are backing the Maduro regime. In his most recent interview, President Trump left the military option open, but significantly made no commitments, Tucker. Catherine Harris, your story, we will continue to follow. Thank you very much for that. So, I mean, that is straight up classical neocon propaganda. I mean, just comment on that, Robbie. I mean, it's it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning, that it, it does seem like really the only fundamental difference between some of these hawks um, is that they have different timelines for which countries they want to go after. It's like... He's saying, like, why are we worried about Syria and we, when we should be worrying about Venezuela? It's like in our hemisphere. Um, so, like, a lot of, I, I've noticed over the years, especially since Trump, there has been this attempt made because a lot of sort of neocons like Max Boot, Bill Kristol, Robert Kagan have presented themselves as more liberal. Uh, like, for example, Bill Kristol is now pro Roe versus Wade and gay marriage, even though he like wrote against both uh, very vociferously back when he was uh, writing for the Weekly Standard. So there's this perception now, and I run into this all the time where people think the neocons are all liberals. They're all Democrats now. Um, all the neocons are Democrats. There are no neocons in the Republican Party, people will say. Um, and that's because they're, I think they're using a very narrow definition of what a neocon is. It's more of this sort of liberal interventionist mindset that comes from you know sort of the irving crystal the trotskyite lineage and so a lot of these people will even go as far as saying like actually the neocons are really just all communist they're commies you know you even see some like libertarians saying that well what that does is it omits like an entire other side of let's just focus on project for the new american century the most infamous neocon think tank that had 17 of its signatories and members go into the Bush administration and become 
very influential policymakers within the Bush administration. If you want to call those people neocons, let's just start there. Well, about I'd say about 30% of them have drifted into this world of what could be called the populist right now. That includes people like Michael Ledeen, like James Woolsey, uh, like William Bennett, um, like Frank Gaffney. And Frank Gaffney has a very influential think tank called the Center for Security Policy, where Gordon Chang, for example, does a lot of writing. Now, Gordon Chang is one of the most aggressively anti-China neocons there is, and he's a regular guest on the Tucker Carlson program. Uh, Tucker Carlson also regularly features people from the Committee on the Present Danger China, a mixture between some of those kind of fringy PNAC neocons at 30% I was talking about and the right populist sort of the Bannonites. Then you have the Hudson Institute, which is sort of a, a coalescence of all the factions. You sort of have the PNAC neocons in there. Scooter Libby is the vice chair. Mike Pompeo is now a big part of Hudson. Also with some of these more hawkish neoliberals like Robert Kagan and right populists like Sagar Anjedi, you know, who wants to call himself a populist. So you have places like that having a lot of influence. And then you also have the Claremont Institute, which has its own outlet called American Greatness. Uh, and William Bennett, another one of these PNAC anti-China guys, um, sits on the board for the Claremont Institute. So I do think there's a lot of stuff here happening in the shadows that people are willfully ignoring or just not wanting to see or using a very, very narrow definition of neocon so that they don't have to talk about how there are still very hawkish, far-right uh, neocons who are gunning for China. And I just watched a really interesting clip from Fred Kagan uh, right after the Russia invaded Ukraine. He was sort of complaining about how the entire DC think tank circuit is now focused on China like a laser beam. And I don't think that most people really perceive it that way. Most people, if you're really looking at this from the outside, think that it's mostly the right-wing media that's pushing for escalations with China. But according to Fred Kagan, someone who's on the inside of this, the entire DC think tank apparatus is focusing on China like a laser beam. And I, I mean, I think that that really goes to show that this is not, it's not some partisan split about this. It's just rhetorical differences. I mean, both both sides of this, if you want to split it into a partisan fashion, want war, but yet Tucker and his sort of ilk present themselves as being uh, the you know the less war hungry faction somehow. Um, even though it really does, you know, you, you you could throw a lot more evidence onto the pile. It, it really does appear that he's actually deliberately pushing for some kind of war agenda on China, on Venezuela. Um, and it is sort of interesting that his father, you know, did his father influence him to do that because his father was was so involved in Radio Marti and, and Radio Beijing? I don't know. But um, I do think Tucker is carrying out some kind of agenda. I don't think this is even I don't even think this is in any way, shape or form his own twisted self-perception of some kind of populist framing. I think that this is I mean, I really do believe he is carrying out some kind of agenda, I'm not saying he's directly working for the CIA or anything like that. But these are these are talking points that are being filtered to his show through his show from basically think tanks. And, you know, a lot of these same think tanks that we're already familiar with. And I, his father, Dick Carlson, actually was um, a director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, one of these really hawkish neocon think tanks that have pivoted towards China now. And he also hosted a show 
for the Foundation of De uh, Defense of Democracies, Dick Carlson did, with a CIA agent. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't know how many CIA agents, uh, people who fought in the Contra War are hanging out at, at Dick Carlson's house for family parties. But, I mean, you got to imagine that this, you know, this whole notion that somehow Carlson is fighting the deep state or anything like that. I mean, it's just complete BS. I mean, it, it just should be just it falls apart immediately when you look at any of this evidence. Yeah, I think what's pretty clear to me is that, like I said, there's a there's a split, a division within the ruling class. And there are conservatives who want to ally with Russia against China. They see Russia as a bastion of Christianity, maybe even whiteness. And they see China as this communist, godless, atheistic, you know, uh, non-white country that's threatening the West. And Tucker Carlson, who's a straight up white supremacist, he constantly says that that uh, there's a liberal conspiracy to to make the U.S. Uh, non-white by immigration from the third world. I'm gonna, I'll get to that in a second. Just straight up, just racist, great replacement theory, straight up white supremacist propaganda. But meanwhile, he's also saying, he said explicitly, China is, quote, the greatest threat to democracy and freedom worldwide. I mean, that is as neocon as it gets. This is a clip from 2020 from Tucker. This is from Fox News. This is like straight up neocon propaganda injected into your veins. Like this is not even subtle. Just if, I'm going to listen to the, just the intro of that. In the Wall Street Journal, there was a kind of remark. So last week in the Wall Street Journal, there was a kind of remarkable op-ed stating as clearly as anyone has ever stated the nature of the threat that we face from China. The op-ed was written by someone who would know the director of national intelligence, Don Ratcliffe. So... He, Tucker is quoting the director of national intelligence, the guy who oversees the CIA and all other spy agencies. And then, by the way, he later invites him onto his show to talk about why China is a threat. So this is Tucker allying with the CIA to talk about how evil China is. He called the Communist Party, of China, quote, national intelligence, John Ratcliffe. He called the Communist Party of China, quote, the greatest threat to democracy and freedom worldwide since World War II. It's an amazing piece worth your time if you haven't read it. It's an amazing piece. He's endorsing this this spy agency director who oversees the CIA. He's endorsing this article saying that China is the biggest threat to the, the West. This moment we'll have Director Ratcliffe on to discuss that. He wrote this, quote, the intelligence is clear. Beijing intends to dominate the United States and the rest of the planet economically, militarily and technologically. I call its approach of economic espionage, rob, replicate, and replace. So, I mean, Tucker, rightfully, he was skeptical of U.S. so-called intelligence when it came to Russiagate, which was an obviously, you know, a completely bogus uh, intelligence agency disinformation campaign led by the CIA. But now he's saying, oh, we have to believe the U.S. intelligence because the intelligence is clear. China's a threat. So the CIA is bad when it says, you know, Trump's a Putin puppet, but the CIA is good when it says China is big, bad, evil boogeyman. China robs U.S. companies of their intellectual property, replicates the technology, and then replaces the U.S. firms in the global marketplace. Now, now he supports U.S. corporations. He, he sometimes claims to be against, you know, big corporations and big tech. Now here's Tucker complaining about China, communist China violating intellectual property. Who's going to think about the capitalist intellectual property, Robbie? <laughs> so those aren't simply legal disputes. They have actual consequences for millions of American workers on our standard of living, on what your kids will do for a living. So once again, we see 
this fake populist tactic of claiming to care about workers, but the enemy of workers are not capitalists and the big corporations. The enemies are China and immigrants, of course. And just a few more minutes, another minute here. Ratcliffe noted that in 2018, a Chinese wind turbine manufacturer ripped off trade secrets from a Massachusetts-based infrastructure company called American Semiconductor. As a direct result of that theft, American Semiconductor lost over a billion dollars in value and had to cut 700 jobs. Now, that didn't happen because the company, American Semiconductor, was careless. It happened because they were the victim of theft. That's happening everywhere, including in the Pentagon. According to Ratcliffe, quote, China also steals sensitive U.S. defense technology to fuel President Xi Jinping's aggressive plan to make China the world's foremost military power. <laughs> U.S. intelligence shows that China has even conducted human testing. Okay. U.S. intelligence claims China is conducting human testing. So rightfully, he says we should be skeptical about the CIA on Russiagate. But now we're supposed to believe the CIA when it says that China's doing human testing. I mean, again, neocon propaganda. That China has even conducted human testing on members of the People's Liberation Army in the hope of developing soldiers with a biologically enhanced capability. Robbie, they're, they're literal Antifa super soldiers. China yeah. is making the Antifa super soldiers, <laughs> according to the CIA and Tucker Carlson. And this shit just keeps going on. Remarkable. There are no ethical ethical boundaries to Beijing's pursuit power. of power. Remarkable. Remarkable. We know where this is leading, and Ratcliffe's op-ed spells it out. Quote, Beijing is preparing for an... I mean, more bullshit. ...and take action to it with more intelligence before him than anyone on the globe apart from the president. We're happy to have him on tonight. Director, thanks so much for coming on. Tucker, good so, to see you. You spell this out so clearly that it made me wonder why the rest of us, so many in our public life, haven't been saying this for quite some time. You make it sound obvious. So, I mean, just, just praising this spy agency director and being like, man, why isn't everyone saying that China is the biggest threat to the world? I mean, you also mentioned this should be even more embarrassing is that Tucker has had on Gordon Chang. And look, I love this image here, this screenshot from a MAGA Patriot account. Look at this. It says Gordon Chang, author of Coming Collapse of China. Now, they don't mention that Coming Collapse of China was published in 2001. And in that book, Gordon Chang, this neocon, claimed that China was going to collapse by 2011. And then he was called out and he said, well, fine, it's going to collapse in 2012. Meanwhile, Tucker has him on to talk about how supposedly Western corporations are using Uyghur slave labor, supposedly. I mean, again, this is as neocon as it gets. Talk, talk about Tucker's coverage of China. I mean, this is straight up neocon propaganda. I mean, this is when I, you know, I, I was watching Tucker a little bit on and off just because I typically do watch like right wing media that people, you know, will tell me it's good. You got to check this out. I would just sort of watch it with this, you know, detached perspective to see what Tucker was talking about. And he was talking about this a little bit before the pandemic, but it really kicked up into high gear after COVID-19 hit. It was almost like, you know, people call Rachel Maddow, you know, they, 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 Rachel Maddow has now become sort of epitomizes like a crazy hysteric on Russiagate, you know, like, and, and rightfully so, um, you know, she's put out a lot of very uh, vitriolic 
hysterical propaganda about Putin, uh, very paranoid things that a lot of which you know have been proven to be false. Um, but yet Tucker has this reputation for being anti-war, and you know his program is the most watched cable news show on television, um, most watched news show on TV, and he's able to. Uh, basically do what she does on MSNBC with Russia. He does it with China, an equal amount of hysterical, paranoid rhetoric. And yet he just, it just, she doesn't have that reputation. People don't see him that way. Um, and, you know, I, I like to call him the Rachel Maddow of China gate, even though China gate's not like necessarily a thing. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's no, what it is Tucker uh, Tucker. <laughs> oh God. It is Robbie. China, he, he's been pushing this whole China virus shit. Tucker has re repeatedly said the Communist Party of China unleashed COVID on us to, to, as an attack. That's his version of Chinagate. This is something very interesting because like I'm, you know, I've, I've studied like the 2001 anthrax attacks and how that, uh, you know, most people agree, most experts who've looked into it agree that it came from a U.S. government facility. Um, we still don't really know how it got out. Uh, you know, they, the FBI blamed Bruce Ivan. So I've always been open to the idea of this idea of a general lab leak or, you know, uh, a pathogen um, escaping from a lab. So when it came to like the original narratives that I saw coming through, not just his program, but from people, part of this think tank, the Committee on the Present Danger China, um, it was originally framed. And I would say Tom Cotton was probably the most public face who delivered sort of these talking points for these think tanks. But it was originally framed as the Chinese government was working on bioweapons. And this was made by the Chinese government. This is a bioweapon. And it may have even been released deliberately, like as some kind of, uh, I don't know what kind of warfare they were trying to call it, like for China to basically like shut down the world. And this was the framing initially uh, that was coming out uh, through places like Tucker Carlson's program. And over time, that lab leak narrative has evolved more. And I think rightfully so, even though I'm I'm not of the mindset to think it's a lab leak. I think that a lot of if you want to look at, you know, the potential suspects for that, a lot of the fingers end up actually pointing at people inside the U.S. government and people and American companies like EcoHealth Alliance, not the CCP or not even like Chinese companies like nobody's. So this framing very early on, I think, was very weaponized, very deliberate. The people who probably put it out knew about, you know, the American companies involved. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to make it seem like it was all about this Chinese woman, this bat lady, they would call her the scientist. And it all became this sort of this very, you know, kind of uh, almost like a spy novel, like all these Chinese scientists who were connected to the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party were trying to hide all this stuff. And maybe they were behind it, you know, and that was the original framing. And Tucker continued to push very distorted uh, lab leak framing. When I say distorted, I mean, like even way out of the norm of what is even like the consensus lab leak theory now that most people who believe that uh, push. He was pushing a whistleblower um, named Li Meng Yao, who was, uh, by all accounts, a total fraud. No one knows uh, if she had any connection whatsoever to like anything that happened at that Wuhan lab. And all of a sudden, she sort of popped out of nowhere, linked up with Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon, and later was found to have been also funded by Miles Guo, uh, a, a mysterious um, fugitive Chinese billionaire who has been 
bankrolling Steve Bannon pretty much for the last few decades um, to the tune of about one to two million dollars a year. Um, this is the same Chinese billionaire that uh, had the yacht where Steve Bannon was um, arrested off the coast of Rhode Island. But this whistleblower that Tucker had on uh, named Li Meng Yao is her all of her information, even by people who believe in the Labley consensus, has like debunked her entirely, like that she has been identified as some kind of fraud people don't even really understand why she got into the mix initially. So it's not even that Tucker was trying to push like, you know, this may have leaked from the Wuhan lab there. He was pushing like weaponized fake whistleblowers who are like just complete cutouts, almost like more absurd than like curveball or anybody like from the Iraq war pushing WMD stuff. So, I mean, he got into some really dirty troughs when it came to like, you know, pouring out um, anti-Chinese propaganda. And this, I think this example you're showing is probably one of the most egregious in, for, in terms of being like the phoniest. Yeah, her name is Li Mengyan. Li Mengyan. Yeah, Meng and they describe her as a Chinese virologist whistleblower. This is on Tucker Carlson on, in 2022 on Fox News called Coronavirus Whistleblower Speaks About Possible COVID Origin on Tucker. I mean, straight up shady neocon propaganda. But I want to play two more clips and then we can focus on other people. We talk a lot about Tucker. I think it's important because he gets portrayed as so-called anti-war, even like, you know, 1% of the time, 99% of the time he has on these insane right-wingers, 1% of the time he has on like a few token leftists and people are like, oh my God, Tucker Carlson had on, you know, he's anti-war because he had on a leftist one, one time. And it's like, no, uh, meanwhile, he right after he has like a white supremacist segment about how like immigrants are trying to turn are trying to like kill white people and like turn the U.S. into like a third world country or something. But let, listen to some of this insane neocon propaganda on Tucker. So this is Caitlin Johnston pointed out. Um, and, and again, I mean, people in the comments are saying, well, where on MSNBC do they do they call out the, the Cold War in China? None of us is defending MSNBC. All of us obviously are against MSNBC. I call it MSNBCIA. But this is why it's, this is like this lesser evilism has melted people's brains and they're trying to defend Fox. It's so crazy. Here's a clip from Caitlin Johnstone. She points out that this is easily as deranged as anything we've seen on MSNBC about Russia. Brian Dean Wright is a Democrat and a former CIA officer. We're happy to have him tonight. So Tucker has on a so-called former CIA agent. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. It's striking to me, and it's a matter of public record, that the Chinese government is attempting to leverage its relations with our elected officials to control how we talk about a virus they unleashed on the world. How do you... So there he says, the Chinese government unleashed the virus on the world, and they're now trying to prevent us from talking about that. And again, this is a guy is a so-called former CIA agent. Feel when you hear that. How can anybody uh, not feel outraged? Yeah, we, we all know. Wow. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, Ravi, but in the lower third, it actually provides more info. Not only is he a former CIA agent, he did CIA ops. This is not just an <laughs> analyst. This guy is a straight up, you know, coup plotter style CIA agent doing operations, not just not just an analyst. Oh, we've all lived in a country for the past 30 years that has been sold out to the Chinese government. Your promise in the late 1990s that, hey, China. OK, this. The CIA spook says that the, that the U.S. was sold out to China. Sold out 
to the Chinese government. Your promise in the late 1990s that, hey, China goes in the WTO and we'll all benefit. That didn't take place. We've watched our intellectual property be stolen for 30 years. Who will think of the intellectual property, Ravi, of all these big tech corporations? You know, rightfully, one day Tucker will criticize big tech. I mean, rightfully. And then now he's like, well, the evil Chicoms are stealing their internet intellectual property. Who's going to think about Google's intellectual property? And now we watch some of our elected leaders, I'm sorry to say, many of them on my side of the aisle, capitulate to the Chinese government once again. I mean, here we are, 30 years, and we've learned nothing. So I'm outraged. It makes me incredibly angry. It seems like a pretty straightforward question. So we reached out to Senator Feinstein and a number of other elected officials today and asked, have you had contact recently since the outbreak with Chinese officials? And not a single one responded. What do you think we should infer from that? I think that they're nervous. I think there are a bunch of people who, because of their either useful idiots or they have some degree of uh, knowledge and, and relationships uh, behind the scenes with the Chinese government. Some of them, in fact, could be Chinese agents of the actual. Oh, my government. God. So there we go. We have a so-called former CIA agent who did his CIA ops on Tucker Carlson claiming that U.S. government officials are secretly working for China. They're secret Chinese agents. Uh, behind the scenes with the Chinese government. Some of them, in fact, could be Chinese agents of the actual MSS, their intelligence service, God forbid. They're nervous. And they know that, that uh, if nothing else, the party has, certainly for the past three months, doubled down on their pro-China rhetoric. And if the U.S. intelligence community... Wait, where the hell is this Democratic Party pro-China rhetoric? All Biden has done since he came into power is anti-China policies. Was I mean, ex go ahead. You can you can replace you can you can replace China with Russia with everything he's saying, and it sounds virtually identical to some kind of Rachel Maddow paranoid uh, powwow. You know, like saying that all these Democratic politicians, because they're not openly out there bashing China. Um, that they must be some kind of in you know they're they're agents of influence by the ccp i mean it's absolutely identical to a lot of the same stuff that you heard repeated by some of these crazier democrats and intel officials who go on msnbc that's what i don't understand i mean i'm just responding to some of the comments i'm seeing now it's like you know people continually praise Tucker carlson for being you know, the only they, they call him the only anti-war voice who's anti like you, the Ukrainian war on TV. I mean, if that's your bar, I mean, I, I, do, I just do think we are in such a state of desperation that it's like we don't need to scrape the bottom of the barrel for like consistent and strong anti-war voices. L just look at what he's doing with that segment. He is literally brainwashing his viewers into just being paranoid about another country, just not Russia. I mean, it's, I just don't see how that's a net positive, even if you're looking at it from the perspective of, well, at least he's anti, you know, the, the war in Ukraine. It's like, well, then he's filling people's heads with ideas of being paranoid about China instead. I mean, how is that a net positive if you're just looking at it only from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, you cannot, no rational person can say that that's an anti-war perspective because it's not anti-war. He's only against the specific conflict the proxy conflict with Russia, because he instead wants a war on, on China and on Iran and Venezuela and Cuba. That's not anti-war. I mean, being opposed to one particular conflict doesn't make you anti-war, as we began this discussion pointing out. But uh, so one other clip I'm going to play here, which 
this this clip got a little more coverage and people said well uh glenn greenwell was trying to defend tucker carlson was saying well uh tucker didn't say this his guest said it but yeah i mean obviously tucker has no control over his guests clearly it's called the tucker carlson show but tucker carlson has no influence over who he invites on the show that's named after him this is an insane neocon saying that the u.s military should be sitting on a throne of chinese skulls this is in addition to the insanely misogynist shit that he says in this. Just really simple. Do you think the key to remaining competitive with the Chinese military is more gender advisors? Oh, there's no question, Tucker. I mean, China right now and Russia, they're both testing hypersonic missile missiles that can turn New York City to ash. Uh okay, this neocon on Tucker says that China and Russia are threatening to turn New York City into ash. And so he's criticizing so-called wokeness, which means being accepting of LGBT people by saying that it's bad. Wokeness is bad because it's, it hurts the U.S. war machine. In that case, bring me war wokeness. I've been critical of like the superficial neoliberal corporate wokeness. But if wokeness actually is going to hurt the U.S. war machine, hell yeah, bring me war woke, bring me war wokeness. Uh, Russia is actually developing and has developed satellites that can push our satellites out of orbit and completely cripple our military. Our military, though, they're focused on the important things. We want to focus on climate change, and we definitely have to make sure there are enough tampons in the restrooms at the Pentagon. That's kind of what they're saying. I mean, you, you, I mean, I don't know. There's a psychological term for this, and it escapes my memory at the moment, but where there's a massive real threat that you can't deal with, so you screw. And of course, when he says that massive real threat, he means China. That you can't deal with, so you scurry off and deal with imaginary threats to make yourself feel in control. That kind of feels like what we're watching. Well, what we're watching is the destruction of the U.S. military. And what we're going to end up seeing, Tucker, is thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans die. That's Those are the... <laughs> hundreds of thousands of Americans are going to die because the U.S. military is slightly more accepting to lgbt people stakes right. of the game we're playing here we don't need a military that's woman friendly we don't need a military that's gay friendly with all due respect to the air force we need a military that's flat out hostile we need a military full of type a men who want to sit on a throne of chinese skulls but we don't we don't have that now we, we can't even get women off naval vessels that should be step one but most of them are already pregnant anyway wait so i'm confused i i was told by glenn greenwald and these other charlatans who are just full-on Republicans apologists at this point, that Tucker Carlson is anti-war, but I'm confused. I actually watched that segment, and he's saying that the reason wokeness is bad is because it hurts the U.S. military and hurts the war machine, and his guest that he invited on says the U.S. military should be sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. How can anyone watch that and come away still believing this bullshit narrative that Tucker is anti-war. I mean, willful ignorance, um, uh, maliciousness, bad faith behavior is three different possible answers to your question. I mean, it was really shocking actually to see Glenn Greenwald doubling down as recently as like this week saying that um, Tucker Carlson has like basically repudiated his past. He, he knows he made mistakes in the past and he's sort of, he, I don't know the exact words he used, but he was implying that somehow Tucker Carlson has cleansed himself of these sins of being a neocon. And I don't see any evidence of that whatsoever. It's like 
is it just because he says some boilerplate anti-war talking points on some issues that we automatically must assume that he's repudiated his past neocon statements? In fact, the, the most recent one that comes to mind is when he was asked to address his um, statement that kind of leaked off of that. I think it was like that radio show, Mad Cow or whatever that idiot's name is from a few years ago saying that Iraqis were semi-literate um, primitive monkeys that should shut up and obey, uh, talking about like how they should behave in the face of American occupation. Um, he kind of laughed it off and didn't repudiate anything he said and just kind of acted like the cancel culture brigade was coming for him. So I have no idea what the hell Glenn Greenwald is talking about. I, I think Glenn Greenwald is just making this up out of whole cloth to... I don't know what, I mean, at this point, I honestly don't know why Glenn Greenwald is even saying that. No one would believe that in the face of all this evidence. There is no, there is no example other than, if you want to point to Tucker Carlson's book, Ship of Fools, where he bashes Bill Crystal and talks about what it was like to work at the Weekly Standard and how he doesn't agree with that anymore. Um, I mean, I guess you can lean on that and be like, oh, he's reputed his neocon ways. But like, that to me just seems like a really clever sort of optical rebranding exercise in his book itself. It's pretty much substance free. He doesn't, he doesn't concede anything that really makes him look that bad at all. And he omits a hell of a lot to sort of make it seem like he was never really a neocon ever. It's just, he just happened to work for and be close to all these hardcore neocons. And in fact, he really, you know, thought they were kind of arrogant the whole time and he never really agreed with them, even though, there's just all these, you know, pieces of evidence that he did. And lucky for him, uh, he worked at different, you know, media channels before YouTube was around. So he worked a gig at CNN. He did Crossfire for several years and he moved to MSNBC. Um, so there are plenty of clips of him out there advocating for uh, the Iraq war, a war on Iran. Um, there's a there's a clip from Fox News where he says that um, he thinks Iran is are, are, is crazy and he thinks that they should be annihilated, that we should um, essentially kill them all. And this is just normal things that he would put out there. I mean, I would just I think I sent you these before we even got started. I don't know how we have time to play them, but there's like clips from you know CNN during the Iraq war where he's defending the Freedom Fries anti-French smear campaign because they voted against the UN Security Council vote to invade. Um, and also just, you know, him it's sitting side by side with neocons like Clifford May from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, sort of gleefully acting excited that, you know, all this looting is happening to like Saddam's palaces, when in fact, in reality, what was really happening was there's was a lot of like historical artifacts, like Babylonian ancient artifacts being pillaged and destroyed by U.S. soldiers around that time, too, that he doesn't talk about. But then he ends one of these segments by saying, like, well, we know one thing for sure is that. When this the moment that Saddam's gone is going to be like better for the Iraqi people like forever like there's no question about that. So uh, I'll play he, those was, he was there with all these other psychotic you know neocons. They were saying the same lies about the Iraq War back then. Yeah, I'll play those clips again. Uh, for everyone watching or listening, Robbie is a masterful researcher. He's found these incredible clips that I don't think I don't think people have published before. So this is Tucker defending the insane neocon Freedom Fries campaign back when he worked at CNN. (laughs) 
Welcome back to CNN's coverage. And back when he always wore a bow tie, like a true <laughs> working class man of the people. Bridge of the New Iraq, I'm Tucker Carlson. So just how bad are U.S.-French relations? Well, if French wine sales in the U.S. are any indication, and they are, it seems as though there are still some sour grapes on both sides. Is it time for France and the U.S. to French kiss and make up? Am I going to go to France? I don't think so. Well, let me, let me well, just... Amen. Okay, Mar Martin Walker, right, when right. Uh, the NAACP initiates a boycott of the state of South Carolina because the Confederate battle flag is flown above their state house, liberals say, well, that's an act of principle, and it's a fundamentally, intrinsically a good thing. When ordinary oh Americans God. switch to California wine because France sided with Saddam Hussein before this war, liberals say, well, that's outrageous. That's a kind of censorship. Why is that? I'm not sure they do say that. When we come back, should freedom fries become French fries once again? We'll be right back. The last thing he says is... You said a French. moment ago that we shouldn't rub the French noses in our victory, rather large French noses. We should be magnanimous uh, in victory, and we should make up with France. My question is, why? The French government the backed French Saddam Hussein. Saddam French, Hussein lost. No, why should the French government profit from the reconstruction of the French? And here's, here's another clip you, you sent. CNN's coverage of war in Iraq continues. <laughs> Welcome back to CNN's continuing coverage of the war. I'm Tucker Carlson. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld today said looting in Baghdad is just part of the price of liberating Iraq. But just how bad is the looting? And is it the job of the U.S. military to get that looting under control? I'm not against all the looting, to tell you the truth. If you're talking about looting Saddam's palaces or Tariq Aziz's homes, I say go for it. You're just taking back what's yours. And in some <laughs> oh neighborhoods, God. as far as I understand, they're not looting residential neighborhoods. Now, where that's taking place, that's regrettable. But, you know, that probably happened in Paris, too. And that's exactly right. PJ, isn't this getting... I love this propaganda. It's not happening. But, you know, if it were happening, it would still be justified. Right, PJ, isn't this the Republicans were for law and order? Right? <laughs> well, I, there are exceptions. I, I think they are. Let's put this in some context and perspective. Thirty years of tyranny the Iraqi people have lived under. They've been liberated about thirty hours. Um, in many ways, wouldn't you expect worse? This is no big deal, is it? You've seen riots in the southern region as we now start to take sides. From this point on, we start to step on toes. We start to compete with people who want to control Iraq's wealth. But, but nobody disagrees with that, PJ. But as a longtime military, I mean, I think you will concede that the easy part is maybe a little glib. I mean, there were many things that could have gone wrong. Many Americans, of course, did die. Uh, and in fact, the military campaign was a striking success. Shouldn't we recognize it? And moreover, shouldn't we recognize that there haven't been a lot of revenge killings, the sort of thing you would expect in Iraq? Two headlines I see this week. One, the incredible gratitude the Iraqi people obviously feel toward American troops. And two, the incredible indifference these scenes have been grieved with by liberals. So incredible footage you found showing Tucker. I mean, he was just a full-up neocon. And again, you know, I'm sympathetic to the argument that people can change. Obviously, I don't think people's political views are set in stone. They can change. But as we just spent the last hour showing with constant clips, yes, Tucker claims to now be against neocons, but all he's doing is just rebranding neoconservatism. There's been a split in the neocon movement, and there are some neocons who join the, the Democratic Party who tend to be, who, who think that the, a war with Russia is more important. And he's just part of the faction of the neocons in the Republican Party who now think that the war on China is more important. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it seems like to me. I mean, the, and... 
it's strange because people like Rand Paul and Thomas Massey, like I was mentioning at the beginning of this, they originally started like more, like way more uh, anti-war or further away from where Tucker is. And like you can see it in that Rand Paul clip, even though you played it out of order, the clip of Rand Paul talking to Tucker about how he's worried about Elliot Abrams. It seems like both of them are largely in agreement that Trump might be screwing himself by hiring on like a classic Reagan neocon. Um, but then you see just two years later, it's like it never happened. I mean, so once Trump did take on Elliot Abrams, both both of them said nothing. Um, and I think at that point, it's pretty obvious that Tucker Carlson and Rand Paul had gotten sucked into the orbit of like the Trump executive office itself. I mean, we already heard that uh, we already know that Tr Tucker Carlson was constantly on the phone with Trump, um, maybe even helping him make policy decisions. Rand Paul somehow bought Trump's lie about ending the war in Afghanistan and helped him sell that, even though he never pulled out. Um, so, you know, you could see these fears of influence sucking in pretty much everybody from the Republican Party. I don't know exactly who's sort of at the top of this pyramid. I would say that there's sort of a there's something else embedded in this that I think is also important to mention. And it's this idea that America has sort of become cucked, that America no longer has this agency, that we are no longer strong. And this also sort of plays into, you know, what Tucker's saying about like the Chinese government stealing our tech and using it against us and how they're indoctrinated now somehow have power to indoctrinate our children and censor our movies and all these things. This is all playing into this idea that America is losing its supremacy. And that perception is inherently on some level, it's neocon because it's not just about, you know, we got to protect ourselves and, and, you know, make sure we're taken care of here, which I guess you can argue is some aspect of America first. What I'm describing is inherently about America's hegemonic duty, you know, that somehow um, we're the ones who need to have l literally be influencing the rest of the world and as like some shining beacon through our basically imperial footprint. So on some level, going back to what you said a while back into this episode, it is inherently imperialistic, even within like the sort of the, you know, this quasi anti frame war frame they're pushing. Um, and, and I think that that's what's very interesting about all of it. And I mean, these neocon factions uh, that are pushing for war with China now, I mean, it's fascinating because some of them will act like they hate neocons. Um, I get in arguments with some of these guys from Gaffney's think tank all the time who who the word neocon, they're allergic to it. They don't want they don't want people to see them that way. Um, they refuse to use that label now because they understand how toxic it is, um, you know, much in the same way that like Robert Kagan understood um, that like, you know, he, his way of dealing with that is being like, what does that even mean anymore? He's like, I don't even know what neocon means. You know, these sort of these far right, you know, right populist acting neocons, they'll be like, they'll be like, fuck the neocons. But you know, we also need to <laughs> go to war with China. So they'll, they'll take both, uh, you know, rhetorical frames and it's just sort of, again, it's just, you cannot trust it on its face. And that's why I think it's more important than ever in this, especially like in this new, newer, more inflated alternative media landscape to really vet people, especially new people, media pundits, alt media figures, YouTubers, politicians, anybody to see if they actually have like a consistent or core anti-war ideology or if they're just throwing out something that sounds good. Because 
frankly, war is not does not pull very high. Most people in general do not want war. That is, you know, unless you ask about specific conflicts at specific times, the general consensus in this country is that most people do not want that. So it makes sense why it would be just become sort of a rhetorical tool, you know, to, to gain credibility, but really there's no meaning behind it. And, you know, I, I even saw Glenn arguing with you on Twitter saying like that Ukraine is the war right now. You know, that this China, there is no war with China. There is no war with these other places. I mean, what do people, I, I just don't understand how you can have that mindset either, because it's not like the United States only does one war at a time or, you know, only focuses in one single area at a time. We're doing it everywhere. We're, we're, we're trying to creep into so many different, you know, wars, if you want to call them that, that it's, it's just kind of a weird um, way to sort of, deny a lot of what we've been talking about that just because tucker is talking about one of the you know a very dangerous escalation that's happening right now um in a way that other media pundits are not it just doesn't mean that um he's fundamentally anti-war that he should be celebrated it's like why don't we at least just talk about like if you take that perspective at least acknowledge you know i think this is good but also what he's doing here is bad and what you see increasingly is people like glenn and other people who share Glenn's mindset, especially on the left, like refuse to even acknowledge any of the bad that Tucker's doing. And I find that just very strange. And I don't know if they're doing that because they just want to keep getting booked on Tucker or what, but essentially it's, it's creating a problem because I think that, you know, at least there needs to be more of an identification of how much of an influence Tucker is having over this anti-China rhetoric. Cause that to me, I see as probably the biggest influence he's having on the dangerous side, if you want to call it that. Um, so, you know, again, I just don't understand, even if you like Tucker, why this discussion is somehow off the table. It's like, I, there there should be no sacred cows, you know, on mainstream media. It's like, why, why, are we, why are we putting him up on a pedestal? It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I'll say, I think a lot of it is people, they have extremely low expectations. So they see someone who says, says something mildly critical of, the U.S. war in Syria, and they're like, wow, he's anti-war. But in reality, no. He, again, cynically criticizes one U.S. war while instead saying the reason this war is bad is because the U.S. should be waging war on another target. And not just not just China, but also immigrants. I mean, in, in addition to all the damage that Tucker has been doing, I mean, he really has been mainstreaming straight-up white supremacist propaganda. Here is an Israeli newspaper pointing out how Tucker Carlson cited Israel itself to defend the race, this straight up white supremacist replacement theory. So the ADL, I mean, again, this shows me, it shows how the media, the corporate media manufactures these ridiculously fake narratives that try, it's like the culture war to distract people. So the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is a pro-apartheid Israel lobby group. They spied on anti-apartheid South Africa activists. They have uh, spied on people in the 1980s who opposed the U.S. terror wars in, the Central, in Central America. So they criticized Tucker Carlson for citing straight-up white supremacist propaganda. So then he responded saying, well, I'm just doing what Israel does. So praising Israel for its white supremacist policies. So here they point out that, that Tucker did a, 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 an episode in which he said, he claimed that there is a coordinated campaign to replace the population of the U.S. with immigrants from the third world. 
which is straight up just a version of the white supremacist replacement theory. And, and then the ADL, which again is a pro-apartheid Israel lobby group that has zero legitimacy. The ADL criticized him. So then he responded saying, now from Israel's pr perspective, this makes perfect sense. Why would any democratic nation make its own citizens less powerful? So he's defending it is unrealistic and unacceptable to accept the Jew the state of expect sorry the state of Israel to voluntarily subvert its own sovereign existence and nationalist identity and become a vulnerable a vulnerable minority within what was once its own territory. So wow. that's him citing Israel's racist apartheid policies to say that the US should do the same thing for white people. So I mean we've been talking about how you know Tucker has been been claiming to be anti-war to try to push people who are anti-war into supporting war on China and also supporting war on immigrants. I mean, because war is not just between nations. It's also between classes. It's between people. And Tucker is saying, yeah, I'm against war with Russia and Syria. Instead, I want war on China and immigrants. That's not anti-war. That's another kind of war. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because he'll call himself a libertarian and you know he really does a really good job of removing pretty much like any of the good aspects of libertarianism from his position like you would think if he was libertarian he would actually take some time on his show to be like why don't we decriminalize drugs <laughs> instead you know he, he'll he'll basically make drug users seem like they're the scourge of the earth and show collages of seattle of junkies you know uh, nodding out on the streets with you know um like scary music behind it and make it seem like this is the liberals fault you know and it's like it, it just i just do not buy really even his presentation of himself as a libertarian it just doesn't add up um and i mean yeah he does push a lot of uh, white supremacist style rhetoric and it's kind of curious to me because some of these same think tanks that I mentioned to you earlier have also pushed rhetoric that I, I would say nowadays would be considered white supremacist. I mean, like one of the most I just randomly had a debate with this guy, um, this like MAGA guy a couple of days ago who wanted to have a whole debate with me based on Thomas Sowell's um, of slavery book. And I didn't even realize like Thomas Sowell was part of like the Hoover Institution and that book, I guess, has had this enormous influence over the right to make them feel like, well, because other, you know, uh, populations have subjugated slaves throughout world history, our slavery really wasn't all that bad. And, you know, it's written by a, a guy who happens to be black. So a lot of conservatives lean on this book as almost like their Bible for not feeling bad about slavery. So, you know, I don't I don't know if Tucker Carlson is like really ideologically um like motivated as a white supremacist himself i almost see him more of like he his his program is an outlet for some of the same like think tank rhetoric you know we've been seeing for a very long time but it's just some of it's under the guise of being you know more populist or america first or nationalist or whatever you want to call it and it does sort of creep closer and closer to being like you know like you're saying like this sort of almost like kind of neo-Nazi adjacent uh, belief system. I mean, I don't know if Tucker has used terms like anti-white on his program or white genocide, but it honestly wouldn't even surprise me if he has. And, you know, but I do think some of those like classic, you know, think tanks have also been stoking those forces. And 
I don't know why they're doing it. I mean, with the, you know, most recently with this whole groomer um, thing where it's like now gay people are again uh, being seen as this like scary way to, you know, uh, indoctrinate society. I mean, th there's a lot of strange things happening in regards to that. But yeah, I mean, it's undeniable um, that he pushes that kind of rhetoric. And it, it's, it's another thing that, that these people who praise him for, I think it ultimately just says more about them, especially if like they're on the left and they could tolerate all that stuff and look past it all. I mean, what does that really say about those people? It's like, don't, aren't you a little bit concerned that he's putting out this much like white supremacist rhetoric also? I mean, so you kind of have like two things, you know, the white supremacist rhetoric plus all the other, you know, like neocon war rhetoric is pushing out about other countries that just don't happen to be Russia. And I just don't get it. I mean, I, again, I'm just baffled by the, the sort of like praise of him, um, you know, from, from really anyone who's anti-war. Yeah. Again, I mean, I just want to stress this point that some Republicans see Russia as a white Christian country that should be allied with against China. That's why they oppose the war in Ukraine, but they're not anti-war. And the refusal to see that by some people is just really nonsense. I mean, but, uh, you know, I've, it's been a long time, almost two hours. Um, but before we wrap up, just really briefly, we I think justifiably, we spent most of the time talking about Tucker because Tucker Carlson has the most popular show in the United States on TV. He had the ear of Donald Trump. He was allegedly being considered to be Donald Trump's vice president. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, Tucker is a very influential figure. And in the, in the so-called populist right, he's probably the most influential figure. But I want to briefly just address a few other figures. You, Robbie, and your sister, Abby Martin, did a great two-part episode about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is also being portrayed as a so-called populist, even libertarian, even though he's also full-on neocon, who loves apartheid Israel, who has been going hardcore against the BDS movement in support of Palestinian rights, boycott divestment sanctions. The only actions he's ever taken against big corporations, aside from this, like, insane anti-gay stuff with Disney is that he took action against corporations like Ben and Jerry over their pledge to support Palestine. So supporting apartheid Israel is what he was doing, not actually fighting corporate power. And then there's also J.D. Vance, who is now running for Senate in Ohio, won the primary, Republican primary. J.D. Vance also is portrayed as a so-called populist. He talks about the working class, but he once again wants to convince American workers that their, their real enemy are not capitalists, but China. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what unites all of them is very similar talking points. But I guess just to wrap up here, maybe you can speak briefly about other so-called right-wing populists, maybe even Sagar and Jetty as well from Rising, who does the same sleight of hand, claiming to be a populist and then just doing insane anti-China propaganda. I mean, who else are we talking about here? Well, he's a particularly interesting example, I think, Segura and Jetty, because his podcast um, called The Realignment um, was uh, co-hosted by a guy, I think, I want to say his name is Marshall Isikoff, but I always get his name wrong. He used to actually work for an Israeli lobbying firm and was caught on camera in that Al Jazeera documentary admitting what he did, which was basically lie on behalf of Israel. So this is Segura's host sponsored by the podcast was put on by the hudson institute it was called the realignment 
uh, you look at the guest list of it, it is a perfect mixture of the so-called right populist and straight up classic neocons, some of them even the, of the Trotskyite variety. I think even like Douglas Fife was on the show and then they had on Eric Weinstein on the next episode and then they had on someone like, um, I want to say like Michael Malice or something like that. So the Hudson Institute seems, in my opinion, was really ahead of the curve in sort of carving out a space within alternative media. Somehow Segur is already like accepted in the alternative media space with this podcast. And then all of a sudden he he um, has a show that is um, launched by The Hill. And The Hill is owned by like a, a huge Trump guy. For, his name escapes me now. But um, originally the show Rising uh, was not hosted by Crystal Ball. Or no, sorry. It was hosted by Crystal Ball, but not Segura and Jetty. It was co-hosted by a guy named Buck Sexton, who actually was a CIA agent. Um, he did CIA ops. And he also was quoted once as saying that everything he learned in the CIA perfectly translates to his now job in media. He's basically doing the same work. So you have basically this show called The Realignment that was put on by Hudson, the show called Rising that was put on by The Hill, and they sort of merged together. When I say merged together, I mean... The original version of Rising, if you watch clips of Crystal Ball and Buck Sexton, it's just like a kind of a clickbaity, topical, you know, headline show. Um, nothing really unique about it at all. Very generic, pretty, you know, forgettable. But all of a sudden, when Segur comes on as uh, Crystal's co-host, the show essentially morphs into and becomes a video version of the Realignment podcast from the Hudson Institute. Um, and... So I, I found it really interesting that Segur was constantly popping up in these circles and left circles. I would see him on left podcasts appearing up side by side with Crystal Ball. And, you know, I, I slowly would see him putting out very similar rhetoric to Tucker, acting like he's anti-war on certain issues, very hawkish on China uh, very frequently. So when I looked into his background, um, what I found was kind of shocking. And I, I'm just surprised that I'm the only one to bother doing this, you know, maybe because he's seen as someone who's saying the right things about Ukraine that people like to hear. So it's, it's not worth looking deeper into his background. But what you find is he actually worked for um, one of the most infamous neocon think tanks in DC called the Institute for the Study of War under Kim Kagan. Um, not only did he work for this neocon think tank before Hudson, uh, he also went to take counterterrorism training after his general education in, uh, in college at Georgetown University in Israel at a university called IDC Herzliya that had a special counterterrorism program that was taught by a Mossad chief. And this is what he did out of right out of college. And this college occupies a former IDF military base. So I just find it awfully strange that we're supposed to buy this premise that somehow Segur is a right-wing populist now. And that was his origin story with really no explanation of when he decided that he was not a neocon anymore or he's sort of repudiated these things. And this is something you see time and time again. It's like you find these odd things about that are very neocon in these people's background where there's not really an explanation of how they're not a neocon anymore. Um, Someone who's recently appeared in the news because of DeSantis uh, is Christopher Rufo of the Manhattan Institute for somehow 
being one of the luckiest, um, basically journalists, I don't know if you call them journalists, since Glenn Greenwald getting access to an amazing trove of internal corporate and even internal treasury department documents, making it seem like our children and our government employees are being indoctrinated to be self-hating white people, you know, where they hate themselves and kids are basically being uh, groomed because they're being taught about what sexual orientation is. This guy, Rufo, what's fascinating about him is it's like, he's kind of got a mysterious background. It's like, oh, maybe he's just a regular guy who kind of landed in this space. But there's kind of a Jamie Kerchick-ness to his background. Um, and when I say that, I mean kind of a suspicious aspect to his background where he was really on um, the tip of the spear when it came to Uyghur uh, coverage. He actually worked for PBS and did documentaries about the Uyghurs while he was living in uh, Xinjiang province in China. So this guy cut his teeth uh, doing stuff about the Uyghurs like way before he got involved in critical race theory. So it's just fascinating that any of these people you kind of find, they have these odd neocon aspects of their background. Now, maybe that's completely a board, but board could be a coincidence. But oftentimes when someone has them in their background, you kind of have to wonder what they were actually doing that for. And, you know, we mentioned DeSantis. I mean, he's got a very mysterious military record himself. Um, people say he was a JAG officer that helped um, make sure that CIA people waterboarding people, um, you know, these uh, suspected terrorists were doing it according to the Geneva Conventions. So when they would force rectally force feed people, I guess, um, you know, uh, good old uh, Ronnie DeSantis was there to make sure that they were pushing the tube into their anus according to the exact specification of the Geneva Conventions. So there is a sort of a mysterious, it's like, we people really knew nothing about his military record until he ran for governor. And all we really learned then was like, oh, he was a great guy. Um, we really liked him, you know, when he was around. And it's like, you know, I, I personally think his background is a little strange. And to me, when I see like a black spot or a mysterious gap in someone's military record of what they actually did, concrete examples of what they did, I have to go into some Buddha judge-esque territory and you know a lot of leftists <laughs> rightfully think Buttigieg you know might have had some involvement with the CIA I mean look at what DeSantis is doing you know it's not just that he has this mysterious black spot on his record look at what he's done as governor way outside the purview of governor is passing legislation condemning China condemning communism um, saying that he just he just signed a legislation that forces all students in all schools to have mandatory indoctrination against communism, including they need to be taught about how evil Fidel Castro and Nicolas Maduro are. Very libertarian, yeah. forcing kids, forcing right wing propaganda down their throats. This is what's so fascinating about him is that I do think a lot of people who are more civil libertarian minded um, have become so narrowly focused on the fact that Ron DeSantis resisted some of these uh, COVID policies, you know, that a lot of other governors subscribe to around the country. And they are, they have like tunnel vision where they're not able to see all this other very suspicious stuff that he's done. So like just the idea that he's like freedom loving, you know, that he's, he wants to protect free speech um, is something I've, I see people saying. It's like, he's literally making it illegal to work for a public institution and to criticize Israel. Um, and I mean, that is, that's a law that he passed. And, you know, 
there's even libertarians I've gone into arguments with who are like, when did he do that? Like, I don't believe that. And it's like, here's the bill. Like all these governors like him have done this, actually. There's there's many, multiple governors. In fact, pro probably all these ones who act like they're pro-free speech and anti-cancel culture are the ones pushing it, you know? So it's it's just this fascinating juxtaposition when you really get into the weeds of what he's pushed out there. Um, it's all very neoconservative. And, you know, it's very much in line with like someone like a Marco Rubio. And you mentioned his relationship with Israel. I mean, he's really in tight with specifically like the Likudnik faction of Israeli governor, you know, government people. And oddly, he called out the IDF um, for the Miami, Miami condo collapse rescue. And that he made some big PR stunt over, you know, about that. And uh, it was just an odd kind of thing to do. But that's what he did. And um you know, and now he just announced, you know, I mean, it's not a surprise to anyone, but he just sent out an email to his supporters saying, what would you think if I ran for president? It's like, we already knew you were going to do that, dude. I mean, I see him almost like Trump was probably in some ways a very useful vessel for this same faction of like anti-China hawks that we've been talking about. But I think on some level, he really was too much of a wild card to be fully useful to carry out this agenda cleanly. And I think someone like a DeSantis is kind of perfect to be that version of Trump without that sort of unpredictable, egoistic, wild card nature. I mean, I think DeSantis is a very loyal, um, you know, he's a lapdog for some power faction. And I think that that's, you know, I'm, I'm way more afraid of him becoming president than I was of Trump, personally speaking. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, Tom Cotton, you know, is a full on neocon, doesn't hide it in any way. And he doesn't have that kind of so-called populist cred, unlike people like DeSantis, who are portrayed as like outsiders and against the so-called establishment. They, of course, never define establishment. So it just means whatever they want it to mean. It's all this language is kept very vague. Meanwhile, DeSantis is is boasting publicly about how he He's the strongest supporter of Israel in all of the United States. And he tweeted, as long as I'm governor of Florida, BDS will be DOA, dead on arrival. We have a moral obligation to oppose Airbnb's policy against Israel in the West Bank. And he's, he's in his government statements, he's also referred to the, the West Bank as Judea and Samaria. I mean, just a full-on neocon. And, you know, I, I wanted to point out on uh, Sagar and Jetty from... Uh, from The Hill, I mean, it's so clear to me what the goal of that show was. I mean, The Hill is owned by this big Trump supporter and Trump donor. It's so clear that the attempt of that show is to try to try to deceive progressives and anti-war people because they see Crystal Ball sitting next to this neocon. They're like, oh, well, this is like a, a unity between so-called left-wing populism and so-called right-wing populism. Again, populism is not defined in any way. So it's just like, against the establishment. And what it actually is doing is it's trying to brainwash these anti-war progressives into insane anti-China bullshit. And so look at look at some of the stuff, not just Sagar. I mean, Crystal Ball has played into this stuff and needs to be called out for insane neoconservative propaganda against China. Here's The Hill with Sagar and Jetty. CCP member caught revealing how China will use Wall Street to control Joe Biden. So Joe Biden is a China puppet. And again, they frame it in terms of opposition to Wall Street to pretend like they're populist. But actually what they're doing is calling for war on China. 
Here's Sagar and Jetty. John Cena's disgusting bow to China reveals how sold out U.S. elite is. Sagar and Jetty. Biden and West must stand up against China effort to cover up slave labor. NBA China problems show how corporations have sold out America <laughs> to China. I mean, just insane neocon anti-China propaganda. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's just so disingenuous on its face that any of these people care about Uyghurs. I mean, so it's like that, you know, it's phony that they're like just constantly bringing up the Uyghurs. And I have to wonder, you know, when the Foundation for Defense of Democracies uh, being paid money by the Israeli government, basically gunning for Iran this whole time just pivots to China. I do have to wonder on some level, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying suggesting that this is happening, but I do believe the United States and Israel is benefiting immensely from the world outrage about mistreatment of Muslims focusing on this idea of Uyghurs. And I do see more and more increasingly so this pulling attention away from like anything about Palestinians. And you notice that on, you know, for example, like rising, that's a topic that just hardly ever discussed. It's always about Uyghurs. It's never they never discuss uh, the Palestinian struggle whatsoever. And but you did bring up something really interesting about this idea of the ruling class. That's to me is when things get really interesting, because when you really break down what that means to the different people watching that show. So I would assume most people who are on the left watching that show who hear the phrase ruling class, they don't see it in a partisan way. They see it as the ruling class. It's a it's a class of oligarchs and people who are rich and powerful who do not break down along partisan lines. They, their ideology is largely greed and power. So, but the people who are on the right who hear the term ruling class, and I think this applies to the Tucker Carlson program as well, they imagine in their mind as the liberals, the liberal elites, the coastal elites only. They're not thinking about um, this mass of, you know, the actual ruling class that comprises of people who have left and right-wing ideology. So I think that that's a really important distinction. And this idea that China controls Wall Street is also something very fundamental to, I think, you know, this realignment is what their original podcast was titled. Well, I think it's a forced and artificial realignment to try to trick people on the left into buying into this idea that America has, again, lost its agency, that we're cucked. Wall Street is now controlled by China, and all our politicians are bought by China. Um, and I think that that is something you see also pushed by some leftists, uh, strangely enough, like, you know, or so-called leftists like Matt Stoller. Um, and there's other Who, people like him. Who's sort of psycho at this point? I mean, Matt Stoller compares China to Nazi Germany. I mean, just like completely batshit. And the fact that he is also welcomed in, in this is is really reflective of this problem that it's worked that this 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 cynical campaign i was talking about has worked of trying to convince pe people on the left that like these right-wing populists are anti-war and now people who claim to be on the left are buying into this insane anti-china shit yeah and i mean i even saw you know you posted uh, you're showing one of cigars um like this Chinese scholar is admitting how China will control Wall Street and insidiously take over the United States. I mean, that is something like a, what a Rachel Maddow would play on her program. Like, look at this Russian media official from RT saying how they have a campaign to divide the American public. You know, it's like 
to me, it's just as ludicrous as playing a clip of that and saying that this is the truth. Like this is what's happening. Russia is, you know, launching this massive disinformation campaign on us and they've gotten us divided at each other's throats. Well, Glenn Greenwald posted that same video of that same like Chinese academic guy and said like, look, look how alarming this is. Like they're just giving up the plot here. And it's like, and you look at all the comments and everyone's saying like, Glenn, he like, you're doing like, this is like kind of Russia gatey, like what you're doing. Like, what do you, what do you mean? You know? And it's it just the, uh, the lack of self-awareness is strange. And I, I don't, I don't understand how, why there aren't more people being like, yeah, we shouldn't be bending. We shouldn't just be like falling all over ourselves. This paranoid about China or Russia seems to not serve us in our problems here at this, at this time, especially like we have a lot, a shitload of problems happening here. Like maybe we shouldn't attribute everything bad happening here to two different foreign countries that happen to be our main adversaries in the geopolitical scheme of things. I mean, it just, I mean, come on guys. Yeah, and just you know, wrapping up here, I'm just gonna. I just wanted to show I two other videos here on the hill, and again, just showing this insane propaganda from Sagar and Crystal and Sagar debate Chinese virus nomenclature, and of course, Sagar defends calling it the COVID the Chinese virus, and Crystal and Sagar Chinese government moves to kill democracy in Hong Kong, Crystal and Sagar babonic plague discovered in china i mean this shit is just like ridiculous insane clickbait propaganda and it goes back to the, what the point we made throughout this the beginning of this stream here this discussion is that what when people are trying to rebrand the right as so-called populist or anti-war what they're actually saying is that they are opposed to one specific war but actually they support other wars so i mean We've been referencing this stuff from these tweets from Glenn Greenwald. This is this is his tweet on May 12th. He said, I'm sorry this traditionally left-wing view on war is now heard overwhelmingly instead in anti-interventionist GOP camps and on Fox News, almost never in mainstream liberal outlets or from Democratic politicians, all of whom voted for Biden's $40 billion escalation. But it's a fact. So I responded pointing out that it's, that's not true at all. Yeah. Of course, most Democrats are pro-war, and I constantly nonstop criticize the Democrats. But the idea of the GOP and Fox being interventionist, anti-interventionist is complete nonsense. Both of them are pro-war. They just disagree on the targets of empire. Democrats want war on Russia. Republicans want war on China, Iran, and Cuba, and they're all imperialists. And then Glenn responded, just angry as hell. He said, <laughs> that's utter fucking bullshit. Very, very articulate, very, uh, you know, substantive response, Glenn. And then he said, you're just inventing fiction because your religion teaches virtuous political ideas can only reside on the left. So again, just immediately getting to like these ridiculous ad hominem attacks saying that I'm a dem that I'm a, you know, dogmatic, my religion also called uh, reality. Uh, the idea that the right wing is not pro war. Well, that's a religion. Uh, so you make up facts to obscure the anti-war sentiment for the war right now. The war now is on the right. And then I responded pointing out the U.S. is waging many wars right now, not just on Ukraine, also on China, Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran. And of course, he didn't respond because he, I think I don't maybe deep down he's so delusional that he actually thinks that Republicans are now anti-war. But once again, it shows that it's all moving the goalposts that 
all you have to have is one Republican on TV mildly criticize one war while pushing for a new war. And suddenly the narrative is that Republicans are the new anti-war new anti-war voice. Meanwhile, the actual anti-war movement, the actual anti-war organizations organizing anti-war protests, like the answer, like the answer coalition or code pink, they're leftists, they're socialists, they're anti-imperialists, and they recognize that both parties are pro-war. So that's just a note I wanted to end on, <laughs> is that, that we've seen people basically trying to convince us of lesser evilism, but for fucking Republicans. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, and I think that's very deliberate. I mean, that's why I think that a lot of the Republicans themselves are embracing sort of boilerplate, substance-free, anti-war rhetoric and you know i think in that you know thomas massey i think is one of the only republicans like i was saying originally that actually voted against like some stuff to like call out the uyghur plight he's actually been the one of the only ones that hasn't as far as i know and i could be completely wrong with this i haven't seen anything where he's been playing into the escalation against china literally the only one i mean like everybody else who's adopting this boilerplate rhetoric josh howley marjorie taylor green you look at their tweets about it and sometimes they'll even say it in the same tweet they'll be like we can't be sending 40 billion dollars to ukraine we need to like be you know stopping the ccp influence you know sometimes they'll do it in different tweets but it's just very clear that their script is mixed together with a pro-war script on china or on whatever you know like when it, if it came to let's say if cuba uh, became sort of a hot button topic again. They would all pivot to being pro regime change there, and 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 that shouldn't surprise anyone. All the, you know, all the talking points are already there. Um, but yeah, it is it is just bizarre that Glenn Greenwald typically does actually prop up some of these you know right populist politicians who do put out a lot of anti China rhetoric, like Howley or like Blake Masters or J D Vance, you know, and he doesn't really lift up people. Who are consistently anti-war and that's i mean and again i think that that's part of the fundamental issue here it's like let's maybe only lift up people for being anti-war who are consistently anti-war just as a starting point um doesn't matter if you're right or left wing if anti-war is your thing like then look at it from that perspective like 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 criticize people when they're being pro-war on certain issues you know even if you think they're good on other wars i mean so that's you know, that's the thing I'll, I guess I'll leave people with is there's no sacred cows. You know, a lot of people, even Chomsky has been wrong on different wars over the years. So like nobody's, if, you know, should be completely immune to criticism just because they've, they've done good work. Um, and I think that, you know, there's there, it's, it's really too easy these days to just virtue signal being anti-war without actually backing it up with anything. Yeah, well said, Robbie. Well, I took you, I uh, kept you longer than I originally had planned, but I think it was a really good discussion. I'm glad we could, in one place, just cover all of this and show all the clips and get, provide all that context because this is just something that I've seen get worse and worse. And I kind of thought that it was just like a minor thing that would, people would move on, like pretending like these right wing fanatics are supposedly anti war, but it's incredible to see that a significant part of the Republican Party has jumped on this as a narrative that they're using to try to get elected, they're using to try to, you know, take political power. 
And then, of course, when they take power, we saw what happened with Trump. Trump, again, tore up arms control agreements with Russia, started a trade war with China, expanded brutal sanctions on Venezuela and Cuba, expanded the war in Yemen, expanded the war in Afghanistan, uh, refused to withdraw the U.S. troops from Syria and said that he was going to keep U.S. troops in Syria because he wanted to keep the oil. I mean, killed Iran's second in command, Qasem Soleimani. I mean, the attempt to portray him as anti-war is, is fucking insane. And now we've seen other Republicans use the same strategies. So before, I mean, before they're successful again, I think it's really important to call out just, just this farce. It's a complete, completely cynical scam. So I'm glad, uh, you know, I could be joined by you, Ravi. You've done so much good research on this. And anyone watching or listening should go check out his Twitter account, Fluorescent Gray, and also especially his really good documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda, which is about, you know, all of these neoconservative forces that we were talking about today. Uh, and of course, his excellent radio show with his sister, Abby Martin, Media Roots Radio. Uh, Robbie, is there anything else that people should uh, follow that you do? Um. No, I mean that's that's pretty much it. Um, I, yeah, Media Roots Radio is where we is where I usually put like all you know the brain dump for all this research, primarily. So you know if you want to learn more about like the Committee on the Present Danger China or the Hudson Institute or DeSantis um, and his sort of neocon connections, there's all we've done several podcasts about a lot of the things we've talked about um, on today's episode. So I recommend going to check those out. Great, and thanks for having me, Ben. Of course, Ravi. We were talking with Ravi Martin, a great journalist. Definitely check out his work. And I want to thank everyone who joined. It was a great discussion. It was much longer than I thought it would be, but I think we covered so many, so much good territory. It's important to get that on the record. So thanks for watching and listening. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. For everyone watching on YouTube, definitely Please click the red subscribe button. I'm trying to build up this new channel. And this, as always, after the stream is over, this podcast will be, this, this uh, audio will be available as a podcast as well if you want to listen. So definitely keep, keep in touch, everyone. And I'll definitely have Robbie back in the future to talk about what the neocons are up to. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks.